Hey guys, Rob Skiba here. So I've been seeing some articles being passed around social media quite a bit, and it was brought to my attention because apparently I got an honorable mention in an article that was written regarding the Temple of Baal. It says right here on Charisma News, Temple of Baal will be erected in Times Square next month, next month being April 2016 which, as I am recording this right now, is beginning today, April 1st, 2016. So uh, this is written by Michael Snyder, and the article goes on to talk about this Temple of Baal uh, entrance archway type thing that's going to be erected in uh, Times Square and, and also in Trafalgar Square in London. Um, and so this person quotes Peter Goodgame, who was somebody that uh, was very instrumental in steering my line of thinking concerning Nimrod and his relationship to the pagan deities of the ancient world, one of them, of course, being Baal. You can go ahead and read this article for yourself if you're interested. Um, and then at the very end of this, he mentions my book, Babylon Rising. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I got an honorable mention in this charisma news article. Um, but wow, this is potentially very serious, guys. And <laughs> people laughed at, mocked, and ridiculed myself and others. I'm sure Peter Goodgame, Tom Horn, and anybody else, perhaps uh, Dr. Michael Lake, anybody else that's written about this has received their share of mocking and ridicule. Um, whenever we suggested the idea that Nimrod slash Baal slash Osiris Apollo would be the Antichrist. I know a lot of people are heavily invested in Obama, Obama's the Antichrist. I've been on record almost since day one saying I didn't believe that. Um, it seems like every prophecy that comes around concerning the Antichrist is very Amero-centric, usually dealing with whoever's in the Oval Office at the time. Um, but... I happen to believe the scripture interprets itself and that uh, God tells his prophets what he's going to do ahead of time and that the best candidate, biblically speaking, in my opinion, and I know a few others share the same view, is that Nimrod is by far the best candidate. He fits every single description there is of the Antichrist. Um, and so I wrote a book about it, Babylon Rising and the First Shall Be Last, was my book where I dealt with that issue. And then I did a video on YouTube, which if you haven't seen it yet, you should check it out. It's called The Omega Plan with a question mark. So you just do a search in the YouTube search window for The Omega Plan question mark. You'll see mainstream news reports that seem to indicate an apparent agenda that may be at work to bring this character Nimrod back to life. Um, I've been on record as stating numerous times, you want to know why the world will worship the beast? Because they already are. The whole world's not going to worship Obama. There's plenty of Americans that hate the guy, uh, just in this country alone. Um, the whole world worships this, this character, the beast, the Antichrist. No world leader fits that description. Putin doesn't, Ahmadinejad, whatever his name is, doesn't. The Mahdi, not, no. Okay, these guys don't fit the bill. And I'm sorry, but the Antichrist is not going to need a teleprompter to address sixth graders. The whole world worships the beast because they already are, and they have been for thousands of years. I mean, I've been trying to say it 
time and time again on Facebook, our pagan holidays all trace back to this guy. And pastors and ministries will blacklist me and call me a heretic for talking about this. Fine, whatever. But it's the truth. You know, I can't stand it listening to a pastor start his message saying, we know Jesus was not born on December 25th, but, and then he gives some lame justification for why they're doing it anyway. We know that he, he didn't rise from the dead on Easter, but, followed by another lame excuse. Okay, there's no such thing as Christianizing paganism. There's no book, chapter, or verse in the Bible that would even remotely support that. Just read Deuteronomy chapter 12. If your theology doesn't pass the Deuteronomy 12 test, then you're wrong, okay? Our pagan traditions, what's his name? George Barna wrote a book called Pagan Christianity. And in his book, he basically says, you know, if you look at the practices of the church today, there's a pretty good chance none of our usual practices that we do today mirror anything in the first century. The, the followers of the way, they weren't doing what we're doing. We've got it all wrong. We've got so many things in our in the traditions uh, of Christianity today and just the way we do church in general that have nothing to do with the biblical model and, in fact, have more to do with the worship of Nimrod, Baal, Osiris, okay? And this is getting real serious, I think. <laughs> um, lines are going to be drawn in the sand in the very near future. And it just drives me crazy that churches will rather hold on to their vain traditions over the truth of, of Scripture just for the benefit of financial gain. You know, and when ministries that, that used to love me, oh, I was like, wow, man, I was one of their big producers making lots of money for them. Uh, but when I came out with my first book and came down hard on Christmas and Easter, uh, boy, I got dropped like a bad habit, kicked to the co corner, <laughs> labeled a heretic and everything else under the sun. Uh, but you know what? I'd rather be divisive in the truth than united in lies. And there's a whole lot of people right now that are unified in the lie. And I've shown how important Yahuwah's name really is, and that the Hebrew word for Lord, uh, I know there's a, a Hebrew word, Adonai. I get it. Adonai means Lord. Uh, but so does Baal. Baal, uh, the, the meaning of the, the name or the word Baal or Baal, is Lord. So, look, our, our, that's not the name of our God. Our God's name is not the Lord. I know your Bible says that, but that's not his name. J go to any good concordance and, and look underneath where your King James Bibles, it has capital L-O-R-D, look it up, and you'll see over 6,000 times they replaced the name of our God with a generic title. That just so happens to also be the meaning of the name slash word Baal. Again, I understand Adonai also means Lord. But look, God has a name, and it's not the Lord. There's another God out there, little g, that is pronounced Baal, and his name does mean Lord, the Lord. My name is the Lord. That's what Baal means. So that would be appropriate. Baal, the Lord. My name is the Lord. Baal. Baal. So we have the holy name of our God replaced over 6,000 times in our Bible with a word that it is not just a title, but a name for the Antichrist. And now the secular world is getting together and planning to install replica arches from the altar of Baal all over the earth. Sometimes I really hate saying I, I told you so, but the stuff's happening and 
uh, I'm going to play at the end of this video some clips from some other YouTubers that are really on the ball, so to speak, on the ball uh, regarding this issue. And But to set the stage for that, I'm going to put together sort of a montage of various presentations that I've given on the subject. So there's just a, a number of different ones. I'm just going to take bits and pieces of them to string a story together for you so you can wrap your mind around this, how significant this really is. Again, I, I don't believe that we're uh, uh, exactly in the last days. I know there are a lot of people think that it's, you know, the end of the world is any second now. Uh, I believe we have more time. But this could be speeding up the timetable. <laughs> this may indeed speed up the timetable. And, you know, I've said it before regarding the current belief that I have that we may have 18 or 19 more years left to go. Uh, I'm happy. I'll be jacked out of my mind to be wrong. I hope I am wrong. Uh, and looking at the news today, what's happening, I very well could be wrong. Uh, and that could mean we are going to get out of here pretty soon. But not before a whole lot of hell breaks loose on this earth. Um, so with that said, here we go. I'm going to play you uh, a series of clips from several different presentations that I've done. And then play some uh, clips from some other YouTubers that are uh, checking this whole situation out. Here we go. And this is our next speaker this afternoon, Rob Skiba. He is the creator-writer of the forthcoming science fiction internet television series, Seed, and the author of the non-fiction book, Babylon Rising, The First Shall Be Last. He is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, entrepreneur, published author, artist, keynote speaker, motivational coach, trainer, teacher, army veteran, former missionary, and an active member of three charitable organizations serving on several boards of directors. He is a graduate of the Hollywood Film Institute. Rob Skiba's lifelong dream has been to produce powerful television and motion picture productions that will touch lives and expand the kingdom of God. He's happily married. He has a teenage son. He lives in Texas. I mean, there's that too. And uh, Rob, of course, has been a guest in the past on the Prophecy in the News programs. Those shows did very, very well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Rob Skiba to the stage. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You've heard a lot of people talking about the last days. How many of you think we're there? Yeah, uh, we, uh, you've heard different opinions, different ideas that people have regarding the last days and some of the characters like Petrus Romanus, the, the false prophet, who the Antichrist might be. You heard uh, Chris Putnam talking about uh, for centuries people pointed to the Vatican for the, uh, who, a, a potential Antichrist. I'm going to share uh, my opinion on it. Uh, I consider myself, I am a filmmaker by trade, but I consider myself a, to be a researcher by hobby. And that came out primarily out of uh, the result of doing documentary films for almost 20 years. And I consider myself to be a researcher, and by that I mean I research that which has been searched by others before me. Interestingly enough, many of those others are presenting here this weekend, so <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Uh, so I'm going to share with you a few things this, uh, this afternoon. This is not, thus saith the Lord. This is thus thinketh Rob, <laughs> to, to, to coin the King James, <laughs> right? So uh, I'm going to encourage you to search these things out for yourself. Uh, how many of you remember playing Connect the Dots 
when you're younger. I loved doing the connect the dot things, and that's basically what I've tried to do as a researcher. I don't, I'm not about plagiarizing anybody else's material. I'm simply trying to research what other people have searched before me and try to connect some dots for myself and then share it with you. So that's my hope uh, today. There's a book by a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Ken Johnson. He wrote this book called Ancient Post-Flood History, and he uh, gives a very interesting take on one of the theories of how the gods of the ancient world sort of came to be. And he makes note of the ages of a lot of the people spoken about in the Bible. And he says, Noah and his sons lived to be about 600 years old, right? Uh, the next generation lived to about 400 to 500 years. By the time you get to Abraham's generation or so, they were only living to be about 200 years. And by the time you get to Moses, and today, we're kind of capped out at 80 to 120. So after the flood, lifespan began to dramatically drop off. Before the flood, people lived 969 years, Methuselah. I believe Adam was about 930 years or so. Everybody's living right around the 900 time frame. And what this guy says, he says, imagine, you know, let's say this generation here shows up. And as that generation gets old and is about to die, their lifespan is only about 200 years. But the generation before them is living almost twice that. And so here they are on their deathbed, and they're looking at their parents, who they know have been around probably for 100 or more years before they showed up. And they still look healthy and young and look like they could go on for a little while longer. So he speculates that that generation probably would look at their parents as immortals. And their parents' parents who are still around and have lived for a long time, possibly to be gods. And it's one way you could think, nah, I could see that that might be a possible way people started to view other people as gods. As we look at the scriptures, we'll see that uh, great men of renown existed. Some have accused me probably of being a euhemerist. Essentially, a euhemerist adheres to the theory of attributing the origin of the gods of the ancient world to the deification of historical heroes. Euhemerism is named after that individual there, Euhemerus, around 300 BC or so, Greek philosopher. Clement of Alexandria, uh, sort of an apologetics type person for Christianity, said to those, he's talking about the gods and the various people who worship them, he said, Those to whom you bow were once men like yourselves. Right here in downtown Dallas, there's a building called the Crescent Building. Anybody familiar with the Crescent Building? It's a very interesting building. I had to go there to interview some uh, wealthy people, major donors of the ministry that we're a part of. And uh, when I was in the building, I started looking around, and there's three major entrances to the building, and each of the entrances has a really big painting, like the size of this wall, in the entrance. This is one of the paintings. These paintings, uh, I, I was taking pictures of them because I was blown away by them. And, uh, and as I'm taking pictures, somebody showed up out of nowhere. Apparently the eye in the sky somewhere saw me and this gentleman politely escorted me out of the building. Uh, and I am an artist, I'm a painter and sculptor. And, and so I, he was asking me what I was doing. I saw I was just very interested in these paintings and I was asking him uh, were they bought or where did they get them or whatever. And then they said that these paintings were specifically commissioned by the Hunt family for that building in 1998. Let me read the description. There was a plaque that was right next to this uh, painting. 
describing what it represents, what it means. It says, it is significant that in Mariani's iconography, Mariani's, of course, the painter, the protagonists and heroes are all artists and creators. His idealized Olympian figures are conventions of neoclassical art and understood to be demigods. Symbolically, they are harbingers of realities beyond the familiar and mundane realities of the daily world. Mariani's poets are symbolized by their crowns of laurel leaves, and the tortoise is considered to be, get this, the mediator between heaven and earth. Does that sound familiar? Anybody remember that phrase from the scriptures? Who's the mediator between heaven and earth? The man Christ Jesus, right? Yeshua. Since it lives to be the tortoise, since it lives to be of a great age, it is also a symbol of immortality. Not far from that painting was another one. There's an awful lot of imagery here. It would take a half a day just to describe everything that's in that painting. Suffice it to say, it's mostly demonic, full of Nephilim hybrid creatures, very disturbing picture has all sorts of occult symbols and stuff, and owls and all sorts of things dealing with secret societies and all that. All of their favorite symbols are embedded in this painting. Very large painting. In Mariani's art, the artist, which is this guy here you can kind of see, he's wearing a little mask right there, pointing down. The artist, like the mythological hero Sisyphus, who was so admired by the Romantics, has robbed the flame of life from the gods, anointing himself in the role as the supreme creator in and of our culture. This is a major financial institution here in downtown Dallas. That's where a lot of the wealth of this city is located. These paintings are declaring what their intentions and motives and all sorts of other things probably uh, are going on there. And as I was looking at that picture and making notes, this woman walked by and she says, I hate that picture. I hope you're here to get rid of it and walked past me. It's apparently somebody who worked there. Right? Right here in downtown Dallas. And these guys are declaring themselves to be supreme creators. But what does the Torah tell us? The Ten Commandments, right? What does that say? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I think I've always just kind of passed over that. You know, I understand it, but I didn't really give it a lot of thought till recently. Who are these other gods, and why is God so concerned about them? Really started to think about it, so I started doing some research, and I came across a book by a guy by the name of King Wells. It's called Ancient Myths and the Bible. It's a very short book, large print, easy to read. But he makes some very profound and interesting statements in this book. He says, I believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God, and therefore we have to believe that much of what we call myth cannot be fiction or a lie. Many of the themes that exist in ancient mythology exist in the scriptures. And he's right. You know, we're taught about Greek mythology and all that stuff in school, and we just kind of write it off as, you know, fancy storytelling, the, the imagination of a blind poet named Homer, you know, and we don't give it a whole lot of thought, fantasy. But the scriptures treat it very serious. And he suggests that we should look at the Bible from a mythological worldview. And at first that sounds like a strange statement to say because we're always taught to look at everything from a biblical worldview. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. But what he's saying is if you look at the scriptures from a mythological worldview, in other words, understand what's going on in the ancient world with their religions, it wasn't a myth to them. To them, what we call Greek mythology was their pantheon of gods that they worship the same way we worship our God. 
And so when you look at the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, you see this constant war of God against the gods and him always trying to call his beloved back to him because, as it says, they're out whoring with the other gods. He's trying to get them back. And it really, just that simple statement, look at the Bible from a mythological worldview, changes everything because now a lot of things start to make sense that didn't make sense before in the scriptures. Like for me, where Yeshua says, and I think it's John chapter 14, he's talking with Philip, and Philip says, show us the Father and it'll be sufficient. And what does he say? He says, Philip, what are, you, what are you talking about? You've been with me all this time and you're asking me this? If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Well, that didn't compute in my head because the Old Testament used to tweak me out. <laughs> Why? Because you get through the Old Testament and you see these statements where God's saying, kill everybody, kill the women, kill the children, wipe out the animals, destroy everything. And without understanding of what's going on from the mythological worldview, God seems like a homicidal maniac. And it, I could never compute how, how could Yeshua say that if you've seen me, you see my father. And if you read through the Gospels, you see him loving publicans and sinners and judging nobody except, incidentally, the religious people. <laughs> Healing everybody he comes in contact with, delivering them from evil. And I'm like, it was like good cop, bad cop. I could never understand what was going on in the Old Testament until you start plugging in the mythology and a creature known as the Nephilim. Genesis 6 says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. So apparently Moses was also a humorist. <laughs> Believed that he linked the, uh, the ancient deities to men. This is just sort of a breakdown. Uh, this shows the Hebrew perspective from Noah and following some of their generations. But I started to look at the various pantheon of gods and tried to create some family trees to show the kind of the, the, the breakdown of the family, gods, uh, the family of gods. This represents the Sumerians, the, the Sumerian, Assyrian, Babylonian god uh, family tree. Uh, this is the Egyptian, and this is the one most people are familiar with, the, the Greek pantheon right there. Within each of those, you got what essentially the Bible says there were giants in the land in those days. You know, uh, they would be called Titans, and they would be called Olympians and things like that in the Greek mythology. In the scriptures, we have evidence of very big people. Now, this is your average six-footer right here. You know, I'm about six foot tall, so it'd be about like me. Then you've got Goliath, which is anywhere from nine to twelve feet tall. Most scholars believe. Og of Bashan is another guy mentioned in scriptures, about 18 feet when they describe his bed. Early Canaanite giants, I got 24 to 36 feet, but they could have actually gotten as big as 150 feet, according to Amos, and we'll talk about that scripture a little bit later too. Okay, the pre-flood giants, on the other hand, were way bigger than that. The, some of the extra biblical texts talk about them being 3,000 L's, an L is... is or 3,000 L's equals about 300 cubits or 450 feet, which I find very interesting because that's the same dimension as the length of the ark. <laughs> but the pre-flood giants apparently got to 450 feet, if you can imagine that. The Greeks imagined it. They called them the Titans. Post-flood were considerably smaller and continued to get smaller. Is there any evidence out there that these guys were real? You know, I believe the scriptures are enough evidence, but if we need more proof... Throughout history, you know, these are documented skeleton sizes and various times in history where they found these, these different uh, skeletons. There's a book 
by uh, Steve Quayle, I have it up here, you see how thick the book is, uh, that goes into detail about all the various discoveries all around the world uh, throughout history, even in recent times, of giants being found in the earth. Post-flood giants, in the post-flood scenario, you don't see any mention of angels uh, in regard to how they showed up. You see them showing up in one of the sons of Noah, Ham. And I've kind of highlighted Ham right there because if we look at his children, he had four sons, Canaan, Mitzrayim, Put, and Cush. And as you start looking at through these lineages, you start seeing giants in them. Obviously, Canaan, the whole land of Canaan was full of giants, and the Israelites were always having to deal with them, right? All the ites Joshua and his boys had to take out, and David and, and his boys took out later, uh, Goliath and whatnot. So you got lots of giants in Canaan. Mitzrayim is Egypt. Mitzrayim had a son by the name of Kaphtor. Kaphtor uh, is mentioned in Genesis, Jeremiah, and Amos as being the father of the Philistines. Well, we know of at least five giants that came from the Philistines, right? Goliath and his four brothers. So apparently Kaphtor was a giant and had Nephilim seed within his loins, so to speak. Kaphtor settled the island of Crete. Well, the interesting thing about that is all of the Greek gods originated in Crete. All the Greek gods come from Crete. Mitzrayim's son, Kaphtor, settled Crete. Put, there's really no evidence that I could find of giants in Put's lineage. Put is Libya. Cush had a very interesting son by the name of Nimrod that I suspect was also a giant, and we'll talk about that in a second. I didn't really think there was any evidence in any of the other sons. There's definitely no evidence of Nephilim seed in Shem because the Messiah came through that line and the Messiah's seed had to be pure. However, in Japheth's line, recently I discovered what I think, to be, what I think is evidence of some giants in two characters that we're going to be familiar with in the end times called Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog are sons of Japheth. Now, in the United Kingdom, they have a, a celebration every year called a Lord Mayor uh, Parade, and they march these two huge statues in the parade, and they're named Gog and Magog. And as you trace the, the background and history of that, they are apparently two giants that settled the British Islands way, way back in ancient times. So there may be evidence that there were giants in Japheth's line as well. What I find interesting about that is the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10 Men begin to reproduce, and Genesis chapter 10 gives you the sons of, of Japheth and Ham and Shem, and they come up to about 70. Okay, so you got 70 people produced essentially from four couples. You got Noah and his wife, and you got the three sons and their three wives. And they all gathered together. They're all of one language. They went to the plains of Shinar, and they hung out with a guy by the name of Nimrod who decided to build a tower whose top may reach in the heaven. Well, first thing we should note is that the tower was built in a valley. So they clearly weren't, weren't concerned with height. God doesn't seem to be concerned with height either. He didn't freak out when we built the World Trade Centers or the Empire State Building or anything. So what was going on with the Tower of Babel? I believe it was actually an interdimensional portal that they were trying to create because it says they were trying to reach into heaven. And apparently whatever they were trying to do, God said, he looked down and said, now nothing that they imagined to do would be restrained from them. Well, that's really interesting. Um, when you really, okay, let's go ahead and get into this. And, and, and keep in mind what I'm about to read to you. Um, God himself said what they are thinking and imagining to do won't be restrained from them, meaning it was at least theoretically possible. Now, 
uh, I'm going to be talking from, I've talked a lot from Enoch already, but I'm going to talk about the book of Joshua. Now, there are three books, Enoch, Joshua, and another one, I don't have depicted here, Jubilees, that I refer to as a synchronized, biblically endorsed, extra-biblical text. The reason I say that is because they tell the same story, the same chronological order of events that we see in Genesis. They are biblically endorsed because the Bible itself canonized text, quotes from these books, uh, makes references to things that can only be found in these books, and in some cases even mentions them directly by name, like the book of Joshua mentioned twice in Scripture. And I've put these books together with the book of Genesis and the King James and the Septuagint all in one volume, and that's the book you see right there, Genesis and the Synchronized Biblically Endorsed Extra-Biblical Text that you can get on Amazon if you desire. Now, in that book, I, of course, have the full volume of, of Joshua in it. And Joshua talks about, uh, it tells a story right here. It says, And the building of the tower was unto them a transgression and a sin. And they began to build it. And whilst they were building against the Lord of heaven, they imagined in their hearts to war against him and to ascend into heaven. And all these people and all the families divided themselves in three parts. The first said, We will ascend into heaven and fight against him. The second said, we will ascend to heaven and place our own gods there and serve them. And the third part said, We will ascend to heaven and smite him with bows and spears. And God knew all their works and all their evil thoughts, and he saw the city and the tower which they were building. And the Lord knew their thoughts, and it came to pass when they were building, they cast the arrows toward the heavens, and all the arrows fell upon them filled with blood. And when they saw them, they said to each other, Surely we have slain all those that are in heaven. For this was from the Lord in order to cause them to err, and in order to destroy them from off the face of the ground. And they built the tower and the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the seventy angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. And from that day following, they forgot each man his neighbor's tongue, and they could not understand to speak in one tongue. And when the builder took from the hands of his neighbor lime or stone, which he did not order, the builder would cast it away and throw it upon his neighbor, that he would die. And they did so many days, and they killed many of them in this manner. And the Lord smote the three divisions that were there, and he punished them according to their works and de designs. Those who said, we will ascend to heaven and serve our gods, they became like apes and elephants. Uh, that's really interesting, that verse right there, because uh, in my missionary travels, I also spent time in India, and I began to wonder, could that be where these guys came from? The, if you look in the pantheon of gods, I mean, the, I think the Hindus have the, the most bizarre ones of all. You know, blue characters and multi-arm characters and elephant-headed characters like Ganesha, the elephant god-man, and Hunuman, the uh, ape god-man. Uh, I'm just saying, I don't know. But here's an ancient Hebrew text saying that one of the groups, um, the one that said, we will ascend and serve our gods, their intent was to put up their gods in heaven. God apparently said, well, I'll make you like your gods then. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn you into like apes and elephants. I don't know. That's what the text says. If I take a literal reading of that text, and if I look at the Hindus and their various pantheon of gods, 
They just so happen to have some that look like elephant-headed man and ape men. Incidentally, Obama carries around Hunaman, the ape man god, in his pocket as a lucky talisman. That's another story. You can look that one up for yourself. Uh, and those who said, we will smite the heaven with arrows, the Lord killed them, one man through the hand of his neighbor. And the third division of those who said, we will ascend to heaven and fight against him, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Those were the ones whose languages were confounded, I suppose. And those who were left amongst them, when they knew and understood the evil which was coming upon them, they forsook the building, and they also became scattered upon the face of the whole earth. And they ceased building the city and the tower. Therefore he called that place Babel, for there the Lord confounded the language of the whole earth. Behold, it was at the east of the land of Shinar. So uh, now you've got all these people, who's, what's left of them. I mean, a fair amount of them were killed off. Others were turned into <laughs> elephants and apes, I guess, or whatever. And everybody else, you know, their languages were scattered. I mean, there's a lot of chaos going there. So all these groups of people went 70 different directions. Uh, you had 70 angels divided up into 70 different people groups, um, 70 different languages, go away talking about the same guy now in different languages. And that's how I believe Nimrod became known as the man of myth, particularly uh, in Assyria, Babylon, Egyptian, and Greek. And I credit these two guys right here, these two authors, Peter Goodgame in his online book, The Giza Discovery, that you can read for free at redmoonrising.com. At least I think you still can. He used to have it up there. Uh, and Tom Horn's book, uh, Nephilim Stargates and Apollyon Rising, who he, he did an update of that book. It's now called Zenith 2016. But they uh, they had a, a, a pretty profound impact on my thinking regarding Nimrod and how he became uh, what I refer to as the man of many names and some of the names that he were he became known by. A lot of different characters in different mythologies. Uh, why? Because they were all worshiping this guy at one time. They're all under his leadership. He was their god for all intents and purposes, and their plan was to basically get uh, Yahuwah out of heaven and set up their own gods and probably presumably set Nimrod up as king in heaven. Um, so God divided the languages to go around talking about this guy and all kinds of symbols become associated with him as well as names, such as the Ankh, uh, which represents resurrection, incidentally. The all-seeing eye. Uh, this is a bust of Sargon, I believe one of the other characters he was known by. And um, he lost his left eye, Nimrod did, apparently in the ancient records. And that motif shows up a lot uh, throughout the ancient myths of one of the father gods missing an eye. Incidentally, it's the same left eye that's on the back of your dollar bill. That's why I don't like carrying them anymore. I call them Nimrods. I don't like carrying them with me at all because uh, because I believe it is a talisman going right back to this false god. Um, zooming in on the timeline and that area that shows right here, the uh, bust of Sargon missing his eye superimposed on top of the all-seeing eye in the pyramid of your dollar bill. Right beside that, I talk about shortly after Abram returns to Ur, Nimrod throws him into a fiery furnace in 1998 AM, AM being years since creation. Um, but Yahuwah saves him. Uh, and in two years later, when Abram is 52, Nimrod has a dream, which is interpreted by his servant Anuki. And I wonder if Anuki might not be where the Anunnaki may go back to this guy. I don't know. Linguistically, it seems similar, but could be, could not. You know, who knows? Anyway, the interpretation of the dream in Joshua 9, uh, chapter 12, 
And that which he had a dream about this uh, bird plucking out his eye. And, uh, you know, he, so he, the interpretation is, and that which thou sawest of the river, which turned to an egg at first, and the young bird plucking out thine eye, this means nothing else but the seed of Abram, which will slay the king in latter days. So losing an eye means the, a death for Nimrod. And apparently, when you look in the ancient record at depictions, it's he lost his left eye. You know, um, Joshua tells you that Esau cut off his head. So could it be that when the head hit the ground, the eye got plucked out with a rock or something? I, I don't know. That motif shows up over and over and over again. And then, and, and I contend that uh, if you've read my Babylon Rising or seen any of my presentations on that, uh, that Nimrod is the coming Antichrist of the last days uh, for a variety of reasons that I give in those presentations. Um, if that's the case, if he is coming back, then consider Zechariah chapter 11 uh, in a last day's context. Woe to the worthless shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. Hmm. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Things that make you go, hmm. When you look in the ancient record, there are a lot of similarities. And, you know, people say there's nothing traces back to Nimrod and they all want to bash uh, Alexander Hislop and uh, discredit him. And, you know, to be fair, he wasn't very good at annotating from what I understand. I've never read his book. I didn't come to any of my conclusions from the two Babylons. Uh, I, I haven't, I've never read the two Babylons. I've seen some quotes other people use uh, from his work. But uh, I personally intentionally did not read it because I wanted to see if I could come to similar conclusions on my own. And I did that, you know, Hislop says a lot of the ancient sun gods, especially traced directly back to Nimrod. And um, and I found it in my own independent research, uh, very similar. Uh, I came to very similar conclusions. And, you know, we just look at different depictions of this guy. Like you have Gilgamesh here on the left. Uh, and apparently he's a giant. If, if that's a full size lion. He's a pretty big dude there. Uh, so you got a club and a lion. You have Orion, same motif, club and a lion. You've got Baal in the same pose here as Nimrod, you know, with the, the same exact pose. And you got the pictures of Ninurta there. Um, there's over and over and over again, we see depictions in, across different cultures regarding their gods, showing their god uh, with a club, a raised arm, and a lot of times with a lion. And of course, we know that Yeshua is referred to as the what lion of the tribe of judah so i believe that there's one who has always been at war with the lion and i'm going to say that one was and is not and yet will be nimrod and when you start looking in the ancient record of the ancient gods and who he could have been known as in the different pantheons i believe that he manifests himself in the assyrian babylonian akkadian uh, religions as uh, Marduk, Ninurta, and Gilgamesh. Why three different names? Well, you're dealing with different groups and, and different uh, morphologies of their myths over time. Gilgamesh uh, was really just sort of a, uh, a fictional story, an allegory, many believe. Uh, it was sort of like the blockbuster movie of the day. Um, so you have him there. And I believe he manifests in the Egyptian pantheon as Osiris. A lot of synchronicity uh, between iconography of Nimrod and Osiris. And in the Greek uh, pantheon, I believe he manifests as Apollo. I had a little bit of a hard time coming to this conclusion at first, but after I uh, tracked it through Dionysus uh, and saw similarities between Osiris and Dionysus, 
um, and other people liking likening them together. Uh, I came to believe that uh, Dionysus and Apollo are sort of opposing personality types, or Apollo in in the post-Hellenistic uh, time period especially, is depicted like this uh, almost effeminate god, the god of arts and poetry and stuff. But earlier, he was known as the destroyer and the giver and stayer of plagues and pestilence, which is interesting because Apollyon um, is named in Revelation 9-11. Um, right after this pestilence, pestilence throughout the Bible is often associated with uh, locusts, of all these chimeric animal uh, centaur-like uh, creatures, uh, animal human centaur creatures coming up out of the bottomless pit. They're described uh, like horses with wings, uh, face like a woman, and you know, or, or teeth like a lion and hair like a woman and whatnot, and tails like scorpions, and they sting people and stuff. These are chimeric centaurs coming up out of the bottomless pit. Oh, by the way, it says that the Apollyon, Apollyon being a derivative spelling of Apollo, was the king over these chimeric centaurs. Well, if you look in the Greek mythology, Apollo is the father of Centaurus. Centaurus is the father of the centaurs. Again, look at the Bible from a mythological worldview. How would the people who have, would have received John's message when he wrote the book of Revelation, what was he thinking when he wrote it? And what was his Greek-speaking, thinking audience? Um, what, what, what was on their mind when he said it? They would have made all these connections. Animal, human, centaur-like creatures. A centaur is part man, part uh, horse. Horse man. So when you read about the 200 million horseman army, it's not the Chinese, folks. It's not the Russians. Yeah, the Chinese have enough people to field a 200 million man army, sure. But go read the context of it. Horseman. Horseman. Centaur. Father of the centaurs, Apollyon. It's all there, especially if you look at it from a biblical worldview, uh, look at the Bible from a mythological worldview. Now, Dionysus is this like party animal, you know, just out of control character. And so I believe it's sort of like this yin-yang sort of idea, the, the good and bad we all have within us. And I think eventually the, 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 uh, what was originally one character got split into two with uh, one retaining the party animal side, Dionysus, and the other retaining, uh, you know, the more kind of chilled out, uh, you know, good guy, so to speak. So my, my Apollo connection to Nimrod really came through Dionysus, which was pretty tightly connected with Osiris. And so, I mean, you really have to go through all of these gods to make these connections and go through them and see what syncs up and what doesn't. Um, and I think that that's what Hislop did initially. Uh, he must have followed a very similar path to the one that I took. And unfortunately, he didn't annotate his findings too well, from what I understand. People, one of the big complaints of his writings is that he didn't footnote very well. So consequently, they think he just made it up off the top of his head. And um, but, but I can tell you, I did my own research on this. I'm showing you guys some of it, just even in the depictions themselves. But I would encourage you to do your own research. I tried to annotate and footnote uh, as best I could in Babylon Rising. Uh, and in my blogs on BabylonRisingBlog.com. Uh, so you can look at some of this stuff for yourself. And, you know, read the ancient historical uh, commentators, the historians, the, the um, uh, what's his name, Diodorus and, you know, some of these other guys. Read what they have to say. In fact, I got a book uh, here at my desk called The Religions of the Ancient World by George Rawlinson. This was done in the 1800s, making similar connections. So the stuff's there. You can make the connections. And if you make all the connections that these guys, especially the sun god variety of guys, going back to Nimrod, 
Well, then all of a sudden you know what's going on with the December 21st through 25th winter solstice deal and why December 25th directly goes back to Nimrod. What's going on with all that? And the phallic symbols that come out of, uh, you know, the myths like in Osiris, the, the Osiris myth and the obelisk, you know, you have this phallic motif that goes through the ancient world, eventually making its way into the, the idea of the Christmas tree. So that's why you've heard me make kind of crude statements about the phallus of Nimrod and the Christmas tree. But it really does all connect. And uh, people like uh, Clement, in the Clement uh, recognitions of Clement, he writes, um, regarding Mystery Babylon and Mother of All Harlots, he says, Fallen angels taught men the use of magical incantations that would force demons to obey man. This became ingrained into the Egyptians, Persians, and Babylonians. Nimrod, called Ninus by the Greeks, so right there he's showing, you know, the Greeks referred to the same character as one of their gods, Ninus, was handed this knowledge and by it caused men to go away from the worship of God and go into diverse and erratic superstitions. And they began to be governed by the signs in the stars and motions of the planets. Uh, the false religions and all that stuff, it really goes back to Nimrod and the fallen angels. So kind of following in Tom Horn's footsteps, my wife and I went to Washington DC back in November, did a little poking around, having taken the red pill. When I was still under the influence of the blue pill, I didn't see anything. Uh, I see what people like David Barton might see, you know. See all the pretty pictures on the bottom? Christian heritage, right? Uh, <laughs> I recommend you all watch Chris Pinto's documentaries, The Hidden Faith of Our Founding Fathers, Eye of the Phoenix, New Atlantis, Riddles in Stone. Check those out, okay? I'm telling you guys, when it comes to Washington, D.C., you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy, <laughs> to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, I, I don't know who made this picture, but I love it. It shows, uh, you know, uh, Ben, Luke, and C-3PO looking out over, uh, and R2-D2 looking out over the, the mall at uh, Washington, D.C., looking toward the Capitol building. That is one evil place, guys. I woke up uh, a few years ago with uh, the name Ningursu stuck in my head. It was like, it's just Ningursu. I'm like, what is Ningursu? It was like ringing in my ears, you know, when I woke up and first woke up. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess that's my assignment for today. So I started looking into Ningursu. Well, I come to find out Ningursu basically is represented uh, on the front steps of our Capitol building right here by Mars and Ceres. Well, wh what's it all about? Well, I was able to trace Ningursu back to being an earlier representation of somebody named Ninurta. And Ninurta traces directly back to Nimrod. So really Ningursu is Nimrod. But in the earlier phases, Nimrod, Ninurta, Ningursu was known as the god of war and agriculture. And just like Dionysus and Apollo was split into different personalities and different characters, this, these earlier representations were later split into war and agriculture were once in one deity, like Baal. Baal was a, a god of war and agriculture. That's why you saw the p depiction of Baal earlier with the, his one arm raised in a club and the other one holding a stick, war and agriculture. Well, they put the masculine attribute of war into the god that the, the Romans called Mars, or uh, Ares to the Greek, uh, and the agriculture went to an entity, a, fe a feminine entity known as Ceres. Well, Ningursu Ninurta Nimrod is divided up as war and agriculture deities, okay, gods, little g's, thou shalt have no other gods before us. You want to know why our nation has been at war 
every year basically since the Revolutionary War is because who are we serving? You turn over your dollar bill and God we trust, right? Yeah. You know, in our Judeo-Christian way of reckoning, we always capitalize the G, right? And all the pagan gods are little G. Look on the back of your dollar bill or anywhere we see in God we trust. It's all in caps. The whole thing's caps. I think that's a convenient way of hiding what God. We have to get a lot more intentional about uh, um, which God are we talking about here? Are we talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are we talking about Nagursun and Nerta Nimrod divided up into Mars and Ceres? Or are we talking about Zeus? Which God are we trusting in? I'll tell you what, if you go to Washington, D.C., you're not going to find the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob represented there. You're going to find all these guys. And on your way into the Capitol building where all our policy and everything's made, you're going to walk right by and give homage to the God of war, which is why they're sacrificing all of our sons and daughters and friends and family on this, this altar, this false uh, war called the War on Terror. War on Terror. Think about that. War is terror. How do you wage terror to get rid of terror? It's not a war against a people group or a nation. It's a war against an idea conjured up in a Luciferian's mind. People who worship these guys, who worship Nimrod. We've got to wake up, folks. When your favorite congressman or whatever is, you know, mentions God, call him on it. Which God? Are we talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or what? We have to get a lot more intentional and wake up. You walk into the Capitol Dome, yeah, the lower pictures are real pretty pictures, they're real nice, look like Christian heritage. But the further up you look into, as Tom Horn called it, the womb of ISIS, the more sinister it gets. You have the freeze of American history there, and yeah, you do have depictions of U.S., United States of America history on there. But as you keep looking, yeah, Tom showed this last night. You have the Aztec calendar stone. You're like, okay, you got Revolutionary War, Civil War, you know, the Wright Brothers' first flight. Aztec calendar stone, What? What is that? And then you keep looking up and you get the 72 binding utility pentagrams surrounding the apotheosis of George Washington where George is depicted as a god beside Neptune and Minerva and Vulcan and Mercury. And, uh, and so I asked the lady that was our tour guide, I said, um, when was that painting done? She said 1865. And I thought, that sounds familiar. Isn't that the year Abraham Lincoln died? And she said, yeah. In fact, he was the first president to undergo what's called the lying in state ceremony. Remember what Tom talked about last night? About the, the presidents, when they die, they go to represent Os Osiris, and the new presidents come in to represent Horus. Well, when they physically die, they bring their body into the womb of Isis underneath the apotheosis and leave it there for a little while. And every president since Lincoln has done so, has gone through the lying in state ceremony. So you're like, oh, okay, that's really interesting. So let's look at the scriptures. For uh, I began to think, if we're talking about the last days, Jesus himself said it's going to be a day like never before. There's never been a time like it, and there never will be a time again like the last days. So the scriptures say in Amos chapter 3 that God doesn't do anything except he tells his prophets first what he's going to do. So when I started to think about characters of the last days, I thought, is he really going to leave us hanging concerning the details of this end-time tyrant? Or is the scriptures going to tell us who he is? And I, I stepped off with that premise and researched some of the things that were searched by others before me and came to the conclusion that the Bible absolutely tells you exactly who the Antichrist is by name. And so let's go through that. This is Revelation 17. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Where does the beast come from? This is like those open book tests, remember in school? <laughs> like, like geography, Find America, and you got a map with the words America written on it. <laughs> Look, guys, I don't have any letters after my name. I have the Roman 
numeral two after my name because my parents didn't want to call me Junior. <laughs> uh, so I don't have any letters after my name, but I can read. And this says the Antichrist comes out of the bottomless pit. So he's not coming from Kenya? <laughs> he, he's not coming from Hawaii? <laughs> the Vatican, the European Union, the Arab League? We've all heard these theories, haven't we? I'm, I'm looking at that with an open book test saying, ah, yeah, it says the bottomless pit. So that's where I think the beast is coming from. Now, I've, I've been a student of eschatology most of my adult life, and I've heard all kinds of things. It seems like every other president we have is a candidate for the Antichrist. Henry Kissinger is a candidate for the Antichrist. You know, Ahmadinejad's a candidate for the Antichrist. You know, there's all, the Mahdi. There's always somebody walking around the earth that, you know, his name adds up to 666, so he's got to be it, right? I, it says the beast comes from the bottomless pit. So that's where I'm going to look for the beast. And he'll go into perdition. They that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Stop. What happens to your name if you do not accept Yeshua as your Savior? What happens to It's blotted out of the book of life. That says to me it had to be there to begin with. How can you blot something out unless it was already there? It's my opinion that all of our names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, but we have to accept our reservation that was paid for us at the cross. If we don't, then our name gets blotted out. He did, he paid the price. You know, when I was asked to come speak up here, somebody paid the, for our hotel room. All I had to do was walk up to the desk and t tell them my name, and they said, yep, here's your key. Somebody paid for my reservation before I got here. All I had to do was confirm it. I believe it's the same way. When we accept Yeshua's sacrifice, the payment that he made for our uh, admittance, if you will, into the kingdom, then great. But if you say, no, sorry, you know, thanks for paying for my hotel, but I don't want it. And they're like, wow, well, you know, we paid for everything for you. We did everything we could to get you here. Man, I'm sorry. Depart from me. You know, so who are these people whose names were never written then from the foundation of the world? It is my opinion, based on the research of Genesis chapter 6, that um, these are people who are never meant to exist in the first place. These may be hybrids. Um, abominations. Uh, if you look at the hybrids that were created in Genesis chapter 6, you saw that they were destined to utter destruction. Throughout the Torah we read this. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, etc., etc., etc. Every time we encounter them, you see the words utter, you know, utterly, utterly destroy. And this is one of the things that trips up many people who don't understand what's going on in Genesis 6 and why many people become agnostics and atheists because they can't accept this God of the Old Testament. Remember I said yesterday, many agnostics and atheists actually know the Bible better than we do? Yeah, because they read those things, they didn't understand what was going on, and they threw the book aside and said, this is crazy, this, this God is a genocidal maniac. Why would I want anything to do with him? Until you understand that he was wiping out abominations and it was an act of love to preserve his good creation from the evils of the bad creations. And Yeshua said in Matthew 24, 37, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Which means, if I take that literally, the last days are going to mirror the days of Noah. And if you keep reading, like in Luke, uh, I believe it's 21, where he's talking, he says, except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. Something's going to happen, and it's going to be really bad to the point where God's going to have to wipe the whole world out again, this time with fire, because of a repeat of what happened in Genesis chapter 6. What has been will be again, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, right?
So it is my opinion that these are um, probably hybrids. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. There's an interesting phrase right there. How is Yeshua referred to in the beginning of Revelation? The one who what? Was and is. So the one who was and is and is to come. So this one's called the one who was and is not and yet is. Huh. Interesting. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads of the beast. Remember the beast has seven heads, right? Are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. A lot of people will stop there and say, see, it's the Vatican. Or they'll, they'll go off into seven kingdoms, talking about kingdoms. Well, next sentence says, there are seven kings. Not talking about kingdoms there. Now, true, kings rule over kingdoms. That's, that's true. But he's telling us to focus on individual people, not on kingdoms, though they may rule them. There are seven kings. Five of these individuals have fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. There's a ton of detail given in those few verses right there. So let's just go with the text here. It says we got five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. Okay. First thing we need to address, again, is that the word that was used there is kings. The word, Greek word is basileus. Strong's Concordance number 935 defined as a king, a ruler, or an emperor. John did not use the closely related word basileia, Strong's Concordance number 932, which means king, kingship, sovereignty, rule over kingdom, etc. So all these teachers are out there saying it's seven, it's seven kingdoms. That's not what the text says in English nor in Greek. It's talking about individuals we need to be looking at. So the five had fallen. Now, when I first started going down this line of thought, I had read um, a book by a guy named Peter Goodgame. who wrote a book called The Giza Discovery. This online for free. You can, I think it's thegizadiscovery.com or, or redmoonrising.com, I think is his website. Anyway, if you could just Google The Giza Discovery by Peter Goodgame. He uh, was going down this same line of thought and put together a list of the people that he thought fit for the, the list of the five have fallen, one now is, and one is to come. And his list was based on, okay, if we know we're talking about the beast, we know we're talking about the Antichrist, let's look for people in the biblical account and in history who fit Antichrist-like characteristics. We know what the Antichrist is going to do and, and some of his characteristics, so let's see who, how many people we could find that fit the bill, basically. And this was the list that he came up with, and as I did my own research, and again, I consider myself to be a researcher. By that, means, by that I mean I research what has been searched by others before me. I, you know, I don't take anything, and I don't want you to take anything that I say any more than I take anything somebody else says just as gospel truth. Take it, absorb it, write notes down, and go search it out for yourself. Pray and let the Holy Spirit be your teacher, not me or anybody else. So when I hear somebody give something that just kind of really resonates with me, I'm like, cool, okay, that's interesting. I'm going to go look it up and go search for myself. I found that I agreed with the list that he came up with, with a few exceptions that we'll cover. Number one, Nimrod. He's the first king in the Bible, uh, in the post-flood world, certainly. Um, he's tried to create a one-world system without God. In fact, his goal was to kill God. Huh, that sounds a lot like the Antichrist. <laughs> Look at what he's trying to do, new world order. Uh, he's going to make war with the one coming on the horse. And wants to, that we know that's Yeshua, so uh, certainly fits. Pharaoh of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. This is something I recently stumbled across. There was uh, a teaching done by Chuck Missler uh, based on Isaiah 52.4, if I remember the, the address right. 
And he was basically saying that there's a very good likelihood, based on the wording of the text, that the pharaoh at the time of the Exodus was an Assyrian. And what I find interesting about that is, if you look at the timeline, a lot of people will say that the Jews were slaves in Egypt for how many years? What everybody says, right? Except Paul said, he set the guardrails up. Paul said from the giving of the covenant of Abraham until the giving of the Torah is 430 years. Nobody's in Egypt for 400 years during those guardrails. From the time of Abraham until Joseph is sold into slavery, other than a few trips there and back, but nobody's like spending time there, and certainly nobody's enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. From Abraham to Joseph is 215 years. So nobody's even in Egypt for 215 years. Then what happens? Joseph, you know, he goes to prison, but he gets out, right? What happens next? What, Joseph is what? Made second in, second in command of all of Egypt. So he's next to the Pharaoh. He's the guy, right? So, you know, go a little bit forward from 215, you know, and he's made, you know, the, the second in command. And then the house of Jacob comes down, right, from Canaan. Uh, and then what, what happens then? Wh- where do they go? Goshen. They're given, like, the best of the land of Egypt, and they're living like regional governors and princes, in the land of Egypt. So now you're extending the timeline even further. Nobody's a slave yet. Best I can figure, they probably went into slavery right about the time of Moses' birth or very shortly before that. So 80 to 100 years max is all you can fit in the 430-year guardrail when you realize you know, nobody's there until 215 and you progress that forward. So then a pharaoh shows up uh, uh, that didn't remember Joseph. Well, how could that be if he was an uh, Egyptian? You know, national leaders, it's a good idea. You need to know your own history of the nation you're going to rule, right? Especially if you're coming of the people, for the people, by the people type of scenario, right? So if it's an Egyptian rising up through the ranks to become the next pharaoh, he obviously would know about the other pharaohs in the history of Joseph because it's not that far. I mean, we're talking maybe 100 years from the, from the death of Joseph to the time that the, Moses is born. So uh, Chuck Missler is talking about how I think it says another uh, another pharaoh or whatever the word is used that precedes the pharaoh, indicating a different person. He said the word is uh, heteros, meaning of a different kind. A person of a different kind arose in the land of Egypt and became the pharaoh and didn't know anything about Joseph. And so he put him into slavery. Now, um, Isaiah 52.4 says... And thus saith the Lord God, my people went down afore into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. And so he's got a whole teaching on that. I had never heard that before, but I'm like, well, that's absolutely fascinating because one of the titles for the Antichrist is the Assyrian. We see that in Micah chapter 5 and elsewhere. There's a number of places it talks about the end time tyrant as an Assyrian. So, you know, and this guy, the pharaohs, of course, thought themselves to be a god, uh, and they tried to wipe out God's people, <laughs> right? So he's a good fit, definitely a good candidate for number two. Number three, Sennacherib, another Assyrian. Again, thinks himself a god, tries to wipe out God's people. Anybody know what happened to his army? Angel of the Lord came down and wiped out. It was 180,000 or something like that. I forget what the number was, but all, pretty much the whole army. And then he went home and his sons killed him. <laughs> Uh, so, but, you know, he, if you think of Antichrist characteristics, he's a good fit. 
the king of Tyre, if you read about the description of the king of Tyre, it starts off describing him as a man, and all of a sudden the narrative kind of switches and starts talking about Lucifer, Satan. So clearly this guy had some kind of affiliation or like, you know, likeness of the fallen one uh, for that description to be, have been given. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes is not in our canonized text, although it depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about the church that still has the Maccabees in their Bible, then it is canonized. Regardless, uh, he's in what, in, in my current 66-book canon of Scripture, he's in the intertestament period. Um, those who still have the Apocrypha in their, in their Bibles, it's part of their Bible. Um, you know, he, he came in there and, you know, was killing people, like, you better eat this pig or you die. You know, so start eating pork or you're dead. Um, set up the statue of Zeus and offered up a pig in the, in the temple, right? Um, and Maccabees, I think it's First Maccabees 4, if I remember right, called that act the abomination of desolation. They defined the abomination of desolation as bringing a pig into the temple. And Sheila said, my wife said, um, wow, if the abomination of desolation was the bringing of a pig into the temple... What a, what a, what are we now? <laughs> this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The abomination of desolation, defined as the abomination of desolation, was bringing a pig into the temple. Food for thought. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Yeah. You know, something to think about. Um, but, I mean, if you look at what he did, he's definitely a good candidate uh, for an Antichrist character. Uh, and I would suggest Alexander the Great may be another possible candidate. Um, so I would take number five is interchangeable with either of those two guys as possibilities. Alexander the Great, of course, is in the canonized text of the 66 book canon. Um, and he's described as what? How, what's the uh, symbol used for him? Yeah, the he-goat. Yes, he's described as a he-goat, and he has a horn between his eyes. And it says the horn is the first king. Well, the first king of the Bible is Nimrod. So it appears, at least as I look at that, that, it, that Alexander the Great did whatever he did, in the, at least in the likeness and the spirit of Nimrod. So he's a, a candidate, in my opinion. The one that now is, well, that depends on when you think is, is. Like Clinton said, right? Well, what's the definition of is? <laughs> well, it depends on when you think John wrote the book of Revelation. If it's an earlier writing or a later writing. You know, I've heard good arguments on both sides. I, I tend to lean more towards the 90 AD viewpoint, but I've heard good arguments for the earlier pre-destruction of the temple argument. Either way, you got two Caesars to choose from, Nero or, or Domitian. Neither one of these were good guys. <laughs> you know, I, I suspect Nero was probably worse than Domitian, but you know, he had a burning candlelit dinners to the burning Christians and things like that. Um, but, you know, the Caesars thought themselves to be gods, and they certainly persecuted God's people. So either one, again, would be a good candidate, in my opinion, for the one that was now is at the time when John wrote those words. Now, the one that will come and his reign will be short, I think a, a reasonable case could be made for Adolf Hitler. Uh, somebody in John's future come, reign for a short period of time, and he's done. Um, I think people who lived during World War II, during the reign of Hitler, probably, I, th I would think the most eschatology teachers at that time were probably looking at this guy saying, ah, we're here. Um, I know that if I was living in those days and knowing what was going on, I, I would have been having my eye on him for sure. So 
if this is a reasonable list, then let's continue with the descriptions given in the scriptures. We see that this individual has a deadly head wound, right? And I saw one of the heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And, you know, a lot of people are saying it's Obama right now. And I will admit there is a lot of weirdness surrounding this guy. And I'll talk about him a little bit more as we get further in this presentation. I personally do not obviously believe that he is the Antichrist. I think he may be an Antichrist. There are many Antichrists. But there is the Antichrist beast that we're trying to nail down here. Um, I, in my personal opinion is he's probably playing the role of a John the Baptist type character. Like others before him, preparing the way uh, for what's to come. But, uh, you know, I joke about it, but I'm kind of serious. I don't really think the Antichrist is going to need a teleprompter to address sixth graders. <laughs> you know, and they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? I just can't see that applying to a dude that needs a teleprompter to read in front of sixth graders to give a speech. Uh, he doesn't impress me, <laughs> put it that way. Um, but if we look at the list, looking for somebody who has a deadly head wound, well, Nimrod, uh, in numerous accounts of, of this character, he became known by many names. We talked about last night how at the Tower of Babel, everybody was under his leadership, all gathered together, and then the confounding of the languages, they went out to 70 different languages, 70 different people groups, went their different ways, talking about the same guy, now with different languages. So he took on different names. All right. But in the various uh, stories of some of these names that he became uh, known by, you'll see that he was chopped up. You know, Osiris was chopped up into 14 pieces, only 13 of which were found. Uh, in numerous cases, you see the, the mutilation of this individual. Um, the book of Joshua tells you that Esau cut off Nimrod's head. Esau was known as the mighty hunter, right? His dad loved him because he could bring home the venison, right? Remember the whole deal where he, uh, you know, Jacob fooled his dad, and we you know the whole deal with that. You know, he was a, he was a good hunter. He was a teenager. He's about 15 years of age, I believe, 13 or 15, I forget, but I think he's 15. Um, according to the Joshua account, he was out hunting. Uh, Nimrod's pushing about 200 and change, 230, 215, something like that, years of age. Uh, he was known as a mighty hunter. He's out there, two alpha dogs in the same field. Uh, Esau waits in ambush and at the opportune time rushes out and cuts off Nimrod's head and kills his other two buddies that were with him. Meanwhile, Nimrod had a team of other people who were further away. They heard the commotion, and they came running to see what was going on, found the dead body, and wanted to know who killed Nimrod, their king. Meanwhile, Esau had taken the coats that Nimrod wore that, according to Hebraic legend, were the original skins that uh, God uh, clothed Adam and Eve with that were preserved on the ark and later went through Ham to uh, Nimrod, according to the text. I think that that's where legends, like in the Greek mythology of the Golden Fleece, some of these stories find their origin and possibly a real uh, event like that. So Esau takes off running. Where does he go? He goes home. He's starving after the battle, and this mighty hunter sells his birthright for a bowl of beans? When we read Genesis, that doesn't make any sense at all. This mighty hunter comes in, sells his birthright for a bowl of beans? What? But when you realize the subtext of what's going on from the elaborated story that we get in Joshua, well, it makes perfect sense. This guy's running for, from his, for his life from Nimrod's buddies because he just killed the emperor of the world. He's like, what do I care about my birthright for? I'm a dead man anyway. Just give me something to eat. 
Well, all of a sudden, that story makes a whole lot more sense. Right. Right? So, um, yeah. So, you know, according to the Hebraic text, he was killed by, um, uh, by Esau. Now, there are rabbinic legends that say that Nimrod was killed by Shem. Uh, there's a number of possibilities of what could have happened there. I, I basically think that what, what happened after Esau killed him is that Shem chopped him up into the remaining pieces that we hear about in the Osiris legend, and the pieces were mailed out to people the same way, what's it, the prostitute, I think, in the book of Judges, I think, where she was chopped up and uh, they mailed the pieces to people. They're making a statement, basically. But if you can imagine, Nimrod is the emperor of the world, right? And uh, he's killed, and nobody's there to witness. Nobody saw what really happened. How many people do you think would be trying to take credit for getting rid of this guy? <laughs> Try to prop themselves up as, the, you know, I'm the guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so, interesting. Pharaoh of Egypt at the time of Exodus, he did not have a mortal head wound. Um, Sennacherib, no. King of Tyre, no. Antiochus Epiphanes, no. Alexander the Great, no. Domitian, no. Nero, possibly. It is said that he stabbed himself in the throat. And by the Hebraic understanding, that may be considered part of the head. Okay, let's give it the benefit of the, of the doubt. And according to the historical official, official historical narrative, Hitler supposedly shot himself in the head. Although recent forensic evidence disputes that, they found that that skull was actually a female skull, um, and there's no real evidence at all that showed that Hitler killed himself. In fact, there's a lot more uh, evidence that suggests he probably got away, made his, made his way to Argentina or, or someplace uh, like that. So, but for the sake of argument, let's just say we got three candidates right there. Well, as we mentioned already, uh, one of the titles used for the Antichrist throughout the Old Testament is the Assyrian. Which one fits that title? Only one. Nimrod. So by process of elimination, we've landed on Nimrod. Now, one of the names Nimrod became known by was Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, um, there's a number of different versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh. The way I look at Gilgamesh... Uh, I have a, a book on um, Sumerian myths and legends by uh, Stephanie Daly, I think was the author, Cambridge, I think, Press. She was saying that it was understood that the Epic of Gilgamesh was a fictional story, what we might consider a blockbuster movie of the time. And a good orator, you know, a king, if he's going on a long journey with his troops, they would hire, you know, the local Shakespeare, somebody who could tell a good story, and they would entertain the troops, you know, as they, when they had their downtime. And a good narrator or a good orator knows his audience. And so they would embellish the story, you know, maybe even include the king that he's with as part of the story or local legends or whatever. He would tailor the story for the various uh, people that he was telling the story to. And so you had different versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh. So if you think of the Epic of Gilgamesh is like a blockbuster movie scenario, we could say, well, you know, Harrison Ford is Han Solo. No, he's Indiana Jones. No, he's the President of the United States. No, he's a fugitive. You know? Well, he's all of those things, right? One actor played many parts. So think of Gilgamesh as a fictional story in the Harrison Ford scenario, but instead of Harrison Ford, we're talking about Nimrod, right? One of the uh, quotes from the Epic of Gilgamesh is, who can compare with him in kingliness? Who can say, like Gilgamesh, I am king? Not exact, but pretty close to the same awe that people have re reflected in Revelation 13. So there's a similarity there, but let's continue with this premise. Comparing Nimrod with Jesus, or Yeshua. Uh, Gilgamesh, 
was said to be a God-man, right? You know, we know that Yeshua is the son of man, but he's also the son of God, right? Uh, in the case of Gilgamesh, he's one-third man, two-thirds God. Well, two-thirds of 100 is what? 66.6%. Uh, one-third is what? 33.3%. 33 comes up an awful lot in occult uh, circles and Freemasonry and secret societies, most of which the rituals go back to this guy right here. Osiris. He was one of the only other gods of antiquity besides our god who was known as the king of kings and lord of lords in the uh, pyramid texts in the book of the dead, etc. Osiris, Mithra, Tammuz, these are various characters who, whose symbol was the cross. In this, cake, in this case, the ankh, which actually predates the cross. The hoop of the ankh represents resurrection. So there's this symbology already right there of a dying individual associated with a cross who rises from the dead. Uh, in numerous depictions of the various sun gods of antiquity, he's a dying and resurrecting figure. Apollo. In the case of Apollo, he's the son of God, the son of Zeus in that case. He rules from elsewhere. We know Yeshua is in heaven, right? We're his body here on earth. His head is in heaven. He's, uh, he's the head of the church, as, as it were. He is in heaven. Uh, his body's in heaven. Our body's here. We're the body. He's the head. Uh, in the occult, it's the exact opposite. It's the antithesis. You have the Horus and those who worship on the surface, and you have the Osiris, who's the ruler of the underworld. So it's an exact opposite in that scenario. We have the name of the Antichrist, the beast, that comes out of the bottomless pit, given for us in Scripture in Revelation 9, verse 11. 9, 11. Interesting. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. Where did the beast come from? Okay whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon, which is a derivative spelling of Apollo. Same character. So it just told you who the Antichrist is. It's Apollo. And when you realize who Apollo is, and you start looking at the synchronicities of various mythologies, you realize, you know, the Greeks are just borrowing from the Egyptians who are borrowing from the Sumerians and the Babylonians, etc. And the Romans come along and borrow from the Greeks. Everybody's borrowing from each other, taking the, you know, all of a sudden Zeus becomes Jupiter, and, you know, they're taking the, the gods of those who came before them, renaming them in their own language and assigning attributes to them, and, and sometimes keeping the attributes borrowed from the other cultures. All right? So Apollo is the name of the Antichrist. 666, we all know about the number of the beast. We said that he was one-third man, right? Well, man is a carbon-based organism. The carbon molecule is, consists of six protons, six electrons, six neutrons. So just by default, man's number would be 666 by the uh, carbon molecule. Two-thirds God, 66.6. .6. The Washington Monument re represents a phallus. The obelisk in antiquity is a representation of the 14th piece of Osiris that was not found, that, Osir uh, that Isis fashioned in order to impregnate herself. So this is a disgusting object right here in our nation's capital sticking up like a middle finger to God. And it's the largest phallic symbol in the world, standing at 6,666 inches tall by 666 inches wide at the base. When we talk about Nimrod, uh, just by way of review, in my teaching the mythology in the coming great Decep deception DVD, these are just some of the names that he became known by. There are many more. For the purpose of this talk, I'm going to focus on the ones in red, Gilgamesh, Orion, Apollo, and Osiris. Because some very interesting things have happened in the last few decades. 
they found the tomb of Osiris in 1999. Dr. Zahi Hawass is one of the most renowned Egyptologists out there. He said, I have found a shaft going 29 meters vertically down into the ground, exactly halfway between the Chevron Pyramid and the Sphinx. At the bottom, which was filled with water, we have found a burial chamber with four pillars. In the middle is a large granite sarcophagus, which I expect to be the grave of Osiris, the god. I have been digging in Egypt's sand for more than 30 years, and up to date, this is the most exciting discovery I have made. This is what they found. They, where the red star is between the middle pyramid and the uh, sphinx, that's where they found this opening. For years, they thought it was just a well, a watering well, because it was an opening that had water in it, and you know, people would play in it or do stuff in it or whatever. For whatever reason, they said, let's pump the water out and see what this thing really is. So they pumped the water out, went and found that it went down into this antechamber there, and they walked around, found another opening, and went down, and they found an area that had six sarcophagus and another opening, a seventh one. How many heads did the beast have? Seven. Seven. Six and one, right? So you had, you had three here, four, five, and you went down into the other one down here. So they um, went down there, and this is what they found. They found... This is an artist's rendition of what they found. Uh, at basically, a, a square island that had water going around it, like a moat. They had four pillars on it. They had writing on it that I suspect were instructions for how to use this chamber. And then you have another moat surrounding an island that had a very large, I think it was about 10 feet long, sarcophagus. The lid was open, and there was a body in it. <laughs> So, like, the, the lid was a jar, it was off to the side, and they found a body in it. And everybody, after they examined it, determined this is not Osiris. Uh, very likely, it was somebody put into this chamber, probably with the hopes of being resurrected. Could this be a resurrection chamber, I think, is the big question. And it didn't work, apparently. The person was still there. We talk so much about dispelling myths. How about confirming one? What is this? Susie, this is the tomb of Osiris. The god of the underworld. This once extravagant mausoleum, a moat with four pillars engraved with hieroglyphics constructed thousands of years ago, was intended to be a shrine for the keeper of the afterlife. So, uh, flash forward a few years later, the tomb of Gilgamesh was found in April of 2003. Uh, and in this case, there was a body. And it was a very large body. And from all accounts that I had read and heard about this, the body was still very well preserved. I believe that Osiris was the very first mummy, the first person to be pre preserved through mummification. Imagine the startling proposition that the Nephilim, the giants, the mighty men of old, the gods and children of the Watchers could somehow rise up, could somehow be reconstituted inside of a body. And, of course, I've discussed with you before my theory that one of the greatest legends in history could be a record of that having actually happened. And I'm referring to Nimrod, who some scholars also identify as Gilgamesh of Sumerian fame, Apollo of Greek fame, Osiris of Egyptian fame. And this Gilgamesh was a giant who a lot of people didn't even believe was anything more than myth until his grave marker was found a few years back. And then, according to some people, the military swooped in and took possession and control of that dig. Hey, Tom, I want to interject something. I talked to a special operations general who was there when Gilgamesh's remains, and in his words, were he was in a state of remarkable 
preservation, okay? He said they have Gilgamesh's remains. So if they have Gilgamesh and he is Nimrod, they got it. And the whole point was to extract the DNA. Uh, and this body was pulled out of the desert sands of Iraq in April of 2003, coincidentally one month before we set up the military occupation phase. And the first thing our troops did was raid the Museum of Baghdad. 170,000 items were reported stolen. Most of them returned. Of the 3,000 items that were not returned, they were cuneiform tablets and things related to resurrection and the afterlife. One month after finding this body, and apparently one of their primary goals was to extract DNA. When the Iraqi regime fell in April 2003, the Iraqi Museum in Baghdad and museums in other provinces such as Mosul, Basra and Babel were exposed to theft for two consecutive days. The theft was carried out by local and international networks as well as Iraqi and Arab agents. It is estimated that 170,000 artifacts were stolen, 15,000 of which have no registration records. The most important of these artifacts are the Sumerian cuneiforms, which represents the philosophy of life and death. Many date back to Mesopotamian times more than 4,000 years ago. Artifacts pertaining to the civilizations of the Sumerians, Babylonians, and Chaldeans, and others that go back thousands of years in history, were taken away from the land of the two rivers. In addition, entire book collections from certain historic eras disappeared from the National Library, thus negatively affecting Iraq's wealth of civilization and culture. One must also mention that some artifacts were stolen and sent to Israel via the American forces. But American troops stood by as Iraq's heritage was plundered. One memorable moment that week was when Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld dismissed the looting in Baghdad as unimportant. Freedom's untidy, and free people are free to make mistakes and commit crimes and do bad things. Many of the looters knew which objects they were looking for and where to find them. In other words, they were insiders. Investigations revealed that the main metal gate of the storage rooms was opened. It was not opened by force, which means a person who knew where the key was participated in the theft. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank led a 13-bank consortium to establish the Central Bank of Iraq. De La Rue was brought in to print up the new Iraqi dinar. This currency has some of the most anti-counterfeit measures of any other currency on the planet, and yet it is completely worthless. Its current value is approximately 1163 to 1 US dollar. But from 1982 until about 1993, one dinar was worth $3.22. There are secrets that George W. Bush guards at least as carefully as any entrusted to a president. Secrets he's forbidden to share even with the vice president. Secrets he's held ever since his days at Yale, where in his senior year, like his father and his grandfather, he belonged to Skull and Bones the elite secret society whose members include some of the most powerful men of the 20th century. President Bush has tapped five fellow bonesmen to join his administration. Most recently, the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, William Donaldson, Skull and Bones, 1953. Bones is not restricted to Republicans, yet another bonesman has his eye on the Oval Office. Senator John Kerry, Democrat, Skull and Bones, 1966. You both were members of Skull and Bones, a secret society at Yale. What does that tell us? Uh, not much, because it's a secret. <laughs>
Is there a secret handshake? Is there a secret code? I wish there were something secret I could manifest. 322? A secret number? Uh, there are all kinds of secrets, Tim, but one thing is not a secret. I disagree with this president's direction that he's taking the country. We can do a better job, and I intend to do it. You were both in Skull and Bones, the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? The conspiracy theorists are going to go on. I'm sure they are. I don't know. I haven't seen the website. Number 322? <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, he's not the nominee. And, uh, but, uh, look, I look for... Are you prepared to lose? No, I'm not going to lose. Saddam, 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 John Kerry with 77 electoral votes and George Bush with 66. These men are like this. The only thing that unifies them are skull and bones. Skull and bones will still keep control of the presidency. By our efforts, we have lit a fire as well. A fire in the minds of men. It warms those who feel its power. It burns those who fight its progress. And one day, this untamed fire of freedom will reach the darkest corners of our world. The Bible says that Iraq, which was known in the Bible days as Babylon, will not only emerge in the last days, it will emerge as the wealthiest, most peaceful, most powerful nation on the face of the planet. So the question is, how do we get from the chaos that there has been over the last few years to the wealthiest country on the planet in the last days? Something must get better. Right. So people ask me, are we right. making Iraq safe for the Antichrist or safe for democracy? And it's right. a little bit of both. We cannot continue to rely only on our military in order to achieve the national security objectives that we've set. We've got to have a civilian national security force that's just as powerful, just as strong, just as well-funded. And those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. And you say, with profound gratitude and great humility, I accept your nomination for presidency of the United States. All across America, something is stirring. It's been a whirlwind of activity. Uh, these first hundred days. Finally, I believe that my next hundred days will be so successful I will be able to complete them in 72 days. <laughs> and on the 73rd day, I will rest. What did uh, the President and the Pope uh, talk about this morning? The Vatican positions, you know, don't fall into the usual left and right of American politics. The Pope, for example, is for stronger world government. He just issued an encyclical, a sort of Vatican position paper, calling for much stronger regulation of the financial world. And at the same time, of course, the Pope is opposed to abortion and stem cell research, which Mr. Obama favors. E pluribus unum. That was Latin. It's what's inscribed on a quarter. Out of many, one. Of course, the visual highlight was the president touring the pyramids outside and in. Purification, mummification. Self-identification. That looks like me. Look at those ears. <laughs> 
separated at birth from a hieroglyphic, but the president's guide saw another resemblance. Mr. President, you look like King Tut. I've been told. Yes, it's true. He should know about King Tut. Dr. Sahi Hawass oversaw scans of Tut's mummy that produced this likeness. The president's trip inspired Egyptians to display decorations calling Obama the new King Tut of the world. But even the new King Tut couldn't budge a pyramid. Still, it's good practice for trying to push peace in the Mideast. Scientists from all over the world are trying to figure out what caused a mysterious blue light to spiral in the sky over Norway on Wednesday. Early yesterday morning, just before dawn, this appeared in the Norwegian sky. A blue light, small at first, growing into a spiral and then disappearing into what appeared to be a black hole. Thousands of Norwegians bombarded the Meteorological Institute to ask what that light could have possibly been. Some feared it could have been a meteor, others a black hole, and there are even those that thought it could be aliens. December 21st, 2010, I looked up and I saw a decapitated blood red head, looked like, floating over the shoulders of Orion at 2.22 in the morning. Oh, by the way, 2.22 in the morning Central Standard Time is 3.22 in the morning Eastern Standard Time. 322 is the coveted number of the Skull and Bone Society, of which the whole Bush family has been strongly associated with, as was Carrie. Two Illuminist, 322. What's that? A skull? A decapitated head on top of a pile of bones? 322. What was happening in Iraq at that very moment? Iraq had just announced the foundation of its newly formed government. And the entire planet, you could look this up for yourself, shook. The, the seismographic monitors that check earthquake activity around the world, Every one of them went into the black that night. What's going on? I don't know. After nearly nine years, our war in Iraq ends this month. Today, I'm proud to welcome Prime Minister Maliki, the elected leader of a sovereign, self-reliant, and democratic Iraq. In the coming years, it's estimated that Iraq's economy will grow even faster than China's or India's. Here's my dinars. I got them. Well, you know, look, I'm I from can't... the Trade Bank of Iraq, the only ATM in the country. Uh, I, look, this is a country oh, that's resource-based, that obviously right. um, has tremendous aid by the U.S., but could be very self-sufficient with all these oil uh, companies that we've been talking about that are exploring, that are exploring, they're about to explore there. And so I told my viewer, look, I can't fight it. I would like to know how best to get it, and it would really be great if you know these guys set up these ETFs all the time. How about an ETF right. to play the dinar? That would really be the best way to go. For the first time in two decades, Iraq is scheduled to host the next Arab League summit, and what a powerful message that will send throughout the Arab world. And finally, we're partnering for regional security, for just as Iraq has pledged not to interfere in other nations, other nations must not interfere in Iraq. Iraq's sovereignty must be respected. And let us never forget those who gave us this chance. The untold number of Iraqis who have given their lives. More than one million Americans, military and civilian, who have served in Iraq. Nearly 4,500 fallen Americans who gave their last full measure of devotion. Tens of thousands of wounded warriors, and so many inspiring military families. People ask me, are we right. making Iraq safe for the Antichrist or safe for democracy? And right. it's a little bit of both. This is an extraordinary achievement. Nearly nine years in the making. We're building a new partnership between our nations. 
America continues to maintain a high presence in the country, with the largest U.S. embassy in the world located in the capital, Baghdad, with 15,000 members of staff. Before they leave, U.S. forces will have to transfer dozens of bases to the Iraqis and dispose of or ship out thousands of vehicles. Sometimes it's too cumbersome to bring a lot of this equipment back to the U.S., so a lot of it's left on bases. We're leaving over 500 military bases to the Iraqis, both to the Iraqi security forces and also to the government. This is a happy occasion for all of us. It is considered one of the most important days for the Iraqi army and Iraqis, which is the day of handing over Sania base from the friendly side to the Iraqi army. Okay, so that should lay enough of a foundation for why I consider this a very important topic. Now, at the beginning of this video, I was talking about an article written by Michael Snyder. And now I'm going to play some clips from his YouTube video on it. Uh, and if you're interested in checking his channel out, go to Michael and Miranda, M-E-R-A-N-D-A, Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R. That's their YouTube channel, Michael and Miranda Snyder. So here's a little clip from a video that uh, he put out on this subject. This was actually reported in the New York Times. The New York Times reported about how they're putting up this, this 50-foot arch that stood in front of the Temple of Baal uh, in Syria. Now, uh, you may not remember, but back in August of 2015, headlines were made all over the world when ISIS went in and there's this Temple of Baal that existed in Palmyra, Syria for centuries and centuries and centuries. Well, ISIS went in and basically destroyed it. And so that caused a huge uproar. And then in came the bureaucrats and the non-governmental organizations and the conservationists. And they said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to do something to preserve our quote unquote cultural heritage. And so what they've decided to do was to recreate the 50 foot arch that stood at this temple of Baal in Palmyra, Syria. And they're putting it in Times Square in New York City. And they're also putting it in Trafalgar Square in London, England. Now, to me, this is very, very disturbing because if you know your Bible, you know, uh, you know, you know all about Baal and about how the people of Israel turned to Baal and how God got very upset about that. Uh, but most people don't really realize what worship of Baal entailed. So I have this quote here from Matt Barber of WorldNet Daily, and he described what Baal worship was like, and I'd like to read you this quote, quote, ritualistic Baal worship in some looked a little like this. Adults would gather around the altar of Baal. Infants would then be burned alive as a sacrificial offering to the deity. Amid horrific screams and the stench of charred human flesh, congregants, men and women alike, would engage in bisexual orgies. The ritual of convenience was intended to produce economic prosperity by pr prompting Baal to bring rain for the fertility of Mother Earth. The natural consequences of such behavior, pregnancy and childbirth, and the associated financial burdens of unplanned parenthood were easily offset. One could either choose to engage in homosexual conduct or with child sacrifice available on demand, could simply take part in another fertility, fertility, fertility ceremony to terminate the unwanted child. 
Modern liberalism deviates little from its ancient predecessor. While its macabre rituals have been sanitized with flowery and euphemistic terms of art, its core tenets and practices remain eerily similar. And so it seems appropriate as America, who many regard as the modern day Babylon, to put this uh, reproduction of, of part of the Temple of Baal in Times Square in kind of maybe the most famous location in the most important city in our country. And of course, as Matt Barber pointed out, so many of the parallels between Baal worship of ancient times and of today, the child sacrifice, the sexual immorality are going on today, are celebrated today. So it kind of makes sense that we would celebrate Baal worship. But who exactly was Baal? Well, Baal, uh, and you can look this up on, on uh, Wikipedia, um, Baal, or Bel, as it's pronounced uh, sometimes, goes all the way back to ancient Babylon and goes back to an ancient Babylonian deity known as Marduk. Now, Marduk was considered to be a, a, a mighty hunter. Um, he was also considered the one that uh, constructed uh, and founded Babylon. Uh, along with the, the Tower of Babel. Now that should ring a lot of bells because according to ancient Jewish tradition, who was the founder of Babylon and who constructed the Tower of Babel? Well, it was Nimrod. And in ancient sources and ancient documents, there is a connection between Nimrod and, and, and Marduk. And of course, Nimrod was known by many other na names in the ancient world. Um, uh, some of them uh, uh, include um, it, where, where Nimrod became known as uh, Apollo. He became known as uh, uh, Gilgamesh and Ninurta and Osiris and Dionysus and Enmerkar. And I know this can be very, very, very confusing, but basically what happened is in, in ancient Babylon, was kind of the very first attempt at a new world order. After the Noah's flood and the world began to be resettled, uh, it wasn't too long before a very strong central government arose and it was, and the city of Babylon was founded and it was kind of the very first new world order that uh, the world had seen in the, in the post-flood post era. And so this, this new world order was led by Nimrod who later, uh, once he died and passed on, became worshipped as Baal and Osiris and uh, you know Apollo and Dionysus and all these other gods. All of these, the pagan religions of ancient Egypt and Greece and Rome, all eventually trace back to ancient Babylon, Nimrod. Now, what makes that even more interesting for our time is that there's all these secret societies, all these occult groups that have prophecies that look forward to the resurrection of Osiris or Apollo or Baal or Nimrod. And they believe that someday he will come back, be resurrected, come back and take his place once again as the ruler of the world. Especially if you think about, you take the red pill, right? Go to Washington, D.C., walk out of the train station and look up. <laughs> 
The roof of the train station in Washington, D.C. is lined with pagan gods. You've got Zeus way over on the left. You've got these two eagles, so-called eagles, over on the right. Look at what it says between these so-called eagles. Let all the ends thou aimst at be, thy countries, thy gods, and truths be noble. And the nobleness that lies in other men, sleeping but never dead, will rise in majesty to meet thine own. Huh? Okay. That's interesting. As we were winding down our trip in Washington, D.C., I happened to look over... We're walking down the street, and I saw two very large eagles, bearing in mind what I think the eagles are representing, perched on top of two pillars looking down at something. So we said, let's go see what they're looking at. So we walked down and looked to see what the eagles were looking at. They're looking down on this very large sculpture of a bearded god, a giant bearded god coming up out of the National Harbor. And it's called the Awakening. <laughs> what? Oh, boy, this is crazy, man. Let's look at some things regarding the awakening. These are some the, the pyramid texts, uh, utterance 512. These are all very ancient texts written about a guy that's said to awaken one day. And we got two eagles, the, uh, the Banu, the, the soul bird of Osiris, looking down on this large bearded god coming up out of the National Harbor. Things that make you go, hmm. Manly P. Hall. Again, he says, The dying God shall rise again. The secret room in the house of the hidden places shall be rediscovered. The pyramid shall again stand as the ideal emblem of solidarity, inspiration, aspiration, resurrection, and regeneration. And many Bible scholars today uh, also believe that this character Nimrod is connected in some way uh, to the coming Antichrist, who of course will uh, ultimately rule the world, lead the world, be the false messiah. So if that's the case, and of course Nimrod being connected to Baal, um, and then we're putting this temple of Baal up in the heart of New York City in Times Square and also in London. So next month, are we actually putting out a big welcome mat? Are we putting out a big welcome sign to Baal to Nimrod to potentially the Antichrist right in the heart of our most important city? That's something to think about. In April, part of the Temple of Baal that stood in Palmyra, Syria, will be reconstructed in Times Square, New York City, and also in Trafalgar Square in London. The specific portion that is being erected in both cases is the 48-foot-tall arch that stood at the entrance to the temple. The Institute of Digital Archaeology is the organization behind this effort and the display of these two arches is intended to be the highlight of UNESCO World Heritage Week late next month. After seeing the initial story, one of the readers observed that an arch is really just a gateway or a portal. In other words, it can serve as both an entrance and an exit. So. Could it be possible that we will be unknowingly setting up a gate or a portal of some kind in Times Square? I think that's a very reasonable question. And I have in the past talked about Isaiah chapter 13 uh, almost entirely in the context of Babylon, uh, as in Babylon in the Middle East. But if they're setting these things up all over the world, uh, there's a video out, if you guys haven't checked it out, you need to, by Steve Quayle and uh, Timothy Alberino called um, True Legends. And in that video uh, documentary, uh, Timothy was 
down in Peru in front of a what was believed to be by the locals a portal of some sort that apparently demonic or fallen angel activity has taken place there uh, in recent times, in fact. Uh, and, and he camped out there in front of it and had a freak hailstorm that hit them uh, almost directly right over where they were uh, when they stayed there overnight. But anyway, if you haven't get a had, had a chance to look into that, check out True Legends by uh, Steve Quayle and Timothy Alberino. So gateways are out there, apparently. Uh, doorways. And here we have these arches being set up all over the world, uh, and one of them here in New York City. So this may take on a whole different meaning, uh, at least for me anyway. If you look at the Septuagint version of Isaiah 13, this is the Brenton's English translation from the Greek Septuagint. Isaiah 13 says, The vision which Isaiah the son of Amos saw against Babylon... Lift up a standard on the mountain of the plain. Exalt the voice to them. Beckon with the hand. Open the gates, ye rulers. I give command and I bring them. Giants are coming to fulfill my wrath. Rejoicing and at the same time insulting. Uh, huh. Rulers standing in front of gates beckoning I don't know I mean many researchers have talked about CERN and the fact that CERN is built in the same geographical location of a city that was known for Apollo worship Apollyacum and Apollo is Apollyon of Revelation 9-11 whose name means the destroyer and CERN has a statue of the Hindu god Shiva dancing in a portal, and Shiva is the Hindu god of destruction. So we've seen this theme out there for quite some time, directly related to Apollo, directly related to gateways and portals, directly related to destruction, and many of us, myself included, have had our focus almost exclusively on CERN for this reason. And, you know, looking at their logo, it looks like three sixes stacked on top of each other and all that, you know, lots of speculation. Could they, could they be the vehicle that's going to make this happen? And will it happen there where CERN is? Or will a technology like that be used to fire up all these other portals through some kind of occult ritualistic, magic or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. All I know is archways dedicated to Baal are being set up all around the world as of this month. The worship of Baal, also known as Bel or Marduk or Osiris, can be traced all the way back to ancient Babylon. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Marduk was the chief god of the city of Babylon, and ultimately he became known as Bel, or Lord. Marduk, in Mesopotamian religion, the chief god of the city of Babylon and the national god of Babylonia, as such, he was eventually called simply Bel, or Lord. Originally, he seems to have been a god of thunderstorms, a poem known Enuma Elish, and dating from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, 
1124 to 03 BC, relates Marduk's rise to such preeminence that he was the god of 50 names, each one that of a deity or of a divine attribute. After conquering the monster of primeval chaos, Tiamat, he became lord of the gods of heaven and earth, all nature, including man, owing its existence to him, the destiny of kingdoms and subjects was in his hands. And it is interesting to note that according to Wikipedia, the name of the city of Babylon is believed to have originally came from Akkadian word meaning gate of God or gateway of the God. The English Babylon comes from Greek Babylon, Vavilon, a transliteration of the Akkadian Babeli, the Babylonian name in the early 2nd millennium BC has been Babili or Babila, which appears to be an adapted adaptation of an unknown original non-Semitic place name. By the 1st millennium BC, that's 1000 BC, it had changed to Babili under the influence of the folk etymology, which traced it to Bab-Ili, Gate of God, or Gateway of the God. So now... We are setting up a gateway or a portal for the chief god of ancient Babylon in the heart of our most important city next month. Does anyone else out there find this more than just a little bit creepy? It just seems so surreal that an arch from the Temple of Baal that is nearly five stories high is going to be erected in Times Square in April. But this is actually happening. And now it's being reported that they're going to be building this Temple of Baal all around the world in over 100 different locations. So if you're not familiar with who Paul is, well, Baal in the Old Testament, we know and learn of Baal and how people would commit child sacrifice. They would sacrifice their children to Baal as a way of appeasing him. And of course, Baal in modern interpretation is Satan. So they're erecting these temples in New York City and in London for Satan himself, for Baal, for Baal worship. We can't even get a statue of the Ten Commandments on American soil anywhere. But it's no big deal, and no Christians are in an uproar, and no people seem to care, because most people haven't read their Bible, or most people just are lukewarm. There is a temple being erected for the God in the Bible, the false god known as Baal, who people worship and sacrifice their children to. They did child sacrifice to this deity, who is now known as Satan. And it's being erected around the world. And we're okay with this. Child sacrifice. Everybody okay out there? I repeat, child sacrifice. That's what the God is known for. That is what they offered to him. They offered their children and sacrificed him. We've talked in this channel about Satanism. We talked about all of the forms of human sacrifice, including women who would give their firstborn as being a part of a coven. They would sacrifice their first child to their coven. And people would rape these women and they would have more babies and do this stuff. So let's just erect statu uh, monuments for Baal, right? And they're making it seem as if, well, because ISIS destroyed the, the monument of Baal over in Syria, it only makes sense to build more of these temples and put them all around the world, especially in New York City. Can't put a statue of Jesus Christ there. Can't, can't put the Ten Commandments out anywhere. But we could put this statue that represents human uh, child sacrifice. But the sheep continue to sleep, and they continue to criticize Christians or followers of Jesus Christ, but we allow these things to occur. Now, what's interesting about it is the date that this is supposed to occur is April 19th. 
Okay, on the satanic calendar, April is a very, very large month for them as far as human sacrifice goes. They have a lot of events that occur. April 19th, up until sunrise on May 1st, those 13 days, they commit many satanic rituals, human sacrifice, sex orgies, which leads up to the Beltane on the 30th into sunrise on the 1st, which is a ritual celebrating the resurrection and the rebirth of Baal. Okay, but let's talk about the 19th and what it represents, the date they're putting this up, and look at some events that have occurred in this period of time on the calendar. April 19th, also the date of the Feast of Moloch, where they would commit human and child sacrifices. But look at the events that have occurred worldwide around these dates or on these dates specifically. On April 19th, this date, which is the Feast of Moloch, which is a massive date for human sacrifice, we had the Waco, Texas massacre occur. Those of you who don't know, look into Waco, when the United States government murdered, brutally murdered many, many innocent children and people who were locked inside of a house who had the right to bear arms, but the government felt that they were a threat, whatever the case may be. Waco is a well-known event in in the United States of America where our own government attacked innocent civilians and murdered them, including children. You have the Oklahoma City bombings also occurring on the 19th. Then on April 20th, which is a part of the 13-day festival, you had the Columbine shooting. On the 16th, which is a few days before, you had the Virginia Tech massacre as well on the 16th as the Boston Marathons. So you see the pattern here of a lot of these events that are occurring right around this time, this festival in April, and which leads up to the celebration of Baltane, where they run around naked in the woods. I would post photos of it, but I couldn't find any without people topless. They paint their bodies red. Women, a lot of women naked, painted with their bodies painted up red, running around with torches. If you actually want to see it, you can Google search it. I was going to spare everybody from having to look at that. Men running around naked holding torches. It is a giant orgy for the most part. It starts on the 30th. At night, at sun sundown, runs into sunrise on May 1st, also known as May Day. And that is the, the, <laughs> the Beltane, the occult holy day, which also celebrates the rebirth of Baal. Now, what's even more interesting about all of this is that Baal can be traced back to Nimrod in the Bible. Nimrod was the one who established the first New World Order. He was the one who established the first New World Order. The same exact thing that they're trying to rebuild right now. Right now. And we have these monuments going up around the world celebrating Baal. Have you ever heard of anything more ridiculous in your life? Every day, there's just a story that points that we are closer and closer to the end times. And there are a lot of people out there who have theories that Baal is going to be resurrected, and that is going to be the ushering in of the Antichrist, Baal's arrival here. And they believe they actually can resurrect him. And that's probably what part of this is, is ritual to have all of his temples around. They're going to do some type of massive worldwide ritual with these temples that they're setting up. We've been talking about how they're trying to really usher this in fast because, you know, guys who have been at the top of that pyramid who want this thing done before they croak, like Queen Elizabeth, like George Bush Sr., Kissinger, all of these six scumbags. You know, they're pushing the they're putting their foot on the gas. They want this done now. 
And these are all signs of what is, what is going on around us. You can't avoid these signs. Hey, lukewarm Christians, you okay with the temple of Baal being put up? You want to go back into your Old Testament and read about him? Read about how they sacrificed children to him, how they lit him on fire for him? Right there in Times Square, we're going we're gonna to pull one of these up, huh? Can't find the Ten Commandments anywhere. Can't even find the Bible anywhere. Can't say God or Jesus in school. But we could set up temples all around, all around the world in two major cities like New York and London. For Baal, who people sacrificed their children to for the things of the earth. Can you believe this is even going on? I can't believe I'm even doing a podcast on it. There's nobody protesting. It's no big deal. It's getting swept under the rug. Everybody's too worried about the fake elections, thinking that Donald Trump, you hear truthers out there, which drives me up a wall. There's truthers who point a finger at other truthers and they say, oh, well, this guy does too many exposés on the Illuminati. He should focus more on scripture. And then I'm going to do one on on how Donald Trump isn't really Illuminati. Why are people saying he's Illuminati? All this stuff goes back and forth, regurgitate. That's why I don't want to be a part of this truther movement. I want to be my own thing on the side and call it the awakening movement or just Christ's disciples movement. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But all these people who are supposed to be truthers, the majority, I'm not saying every single one, are talking about things like Donald Trump and how he is anti-Illuminati, anti-establishment, like it's real, like, like it's real, like that's really going on. Like, yeah, oh yeah, he's not a part of it, right, he's the guy to, who's here to save the day. So then is he the Antichrist, or you just want to defend him because you think it's cool that he talks back? Meanwhile, meanwhile, so while we have these truthers talking about Donald Trump and, and defending him, not realizing clearly that this entire thing is rigged, if you're a truther and you think the elections are real, you don't have a clue what's going on, not even a clue, you don't even have a right to open your mouth and point fingers anywhere. Because the elections are fake. Hi, how are you? Here's reality. Uh, you believe in the Illuminati. You believe in all this stuff, but you don't believe that elections are rigged. So you think that they actually take a chance and they allow the people to vote and dictate who's going to get into office. Huh? Uh, I don't think so, boys. That's not how it works. So while people are arguing about this stuff with politics, they're assembling an altar, so to speak, for Ball, a temple for Ball. In the biggest city in the United States of America, in London, and soon to be worldwide. And nobody's talking about this and saying this could possibly be the sign of the end times right here. It is pretty much a temple for Satan that they're building in these cities. Okay? You can't even get the Ten Commandments out in public anymore because people are religiously offended. We've talked about how they're putting satanic coloring books in schools. Can anyone see the signs of the times? Yet truthers are talking about Ooh, Donald Trump, really, he's anti-establishment. He's here to save the day. He's going to get the Illuminati out of there, huh? Do you really have a clue what's going on if you believe that? The whole thing is a setup. Can't you see the signs of the times? They're distracting you with this nonsense. Meanwhile, they're slipping this in. Oh, and it just happens to be on April 19th, right? The beginning of that 13-day period where they perform all these rituals and all these sacrifices. Do we need to go over them? Do you want to know what goes on? Right? We know Easter weekend, they do their Black Mass and their Black Sabbath, mocking the death of Jesus Christ. Then as they usher in the 19th through the 30th, the sacrifice preparation, they kidnap kids, and they hold ceremonial preparations of people for the human sacrifice. They prepare them for it. They have the Damor ritual, the grand climax sex rituals. They sacrifice a woman. They sacrifice young girls. And they have the Beltane 
which is one of the most important nights in the satanic calendar. Blood rituals, human sacrifice take place, orgies, disgusting, disturbing things all going on around us. And what are the sheep busy doing? Uh, Donald Trump, I, I don't know. I think maybe he's... I think maybe he's going to fix everything. No one's fixing anything except one person, Jesus Christ, Yeshua. He's the only one who's fixing anything. None of these people are real. They're puppets. Okay? If Donald Trump was really against them and anti-establishment and somehow was, was winning and go and, and, and your votes counted all. So first of all, they would have killed him. Second of all, they wouldn't even allow him to be in this spot because they don't count your votes. It's all rigged. If you're that naive and you really believe in that, then you really need an awakening. When it comes to coming out of Babylon, uh, it does not require votes. It does not require picket signs. It does not require guns nor a violent revolution. That's not what I'm advocating here. I'm not uh, trying to get people all riled up to go, you know, go crazy here. It only requires one thing on our part. Repentance. Repentance. If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's the key to our survival right there, Second Chronicles 7.14. And that takes us to the final chapter, which I didn't even want to write in my book. When I, I finished close, uh, coming out of Babylon, I thought, okay, I'm done. And Yahuwah basically said, uh, yeah, no, no, you're not. Um, you've got to come out of Babylon too. Well, I'm not in Babylon, Lord. <laughs> Yeah, you are. You know, all that stuff you're participating in, you love so much, Christmas and Easter and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Yeah, well, that has nothing to do with me or my son. I know you guys like to think that it is. Uh, this is a picture I created for Facebook. <laughs> exactly what part of I wasn't born on December 25th do you guys not understand? Here's the thing that gets me, and this is what really fires me up and frustrates me, is you have major leaders in the evangelical movement telling you in your face, telling you, we know he was not born on December 25th, but that word, but just invalidated everything you just said before it. And what, what means what's coming next is some lame justification and it's getting real bad. It's like every year it's getting worse than it was the year before. And don't believe me. Well, here you go. I'll let you hear it for yourself. People say, how can you celebrate Christmas, uh, that used to be a pagan holiday. I'd say, well, it fits perfectly. We used to be pagans, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. In, in other words, why, why wouldn't we? Um... And how did you get the concept of doing this movie? Well, I made Saving Christmas because, number one, it's hands down my favorite holiday of the year, my favorite season. I mean, I just love when the chestnuts start getting roasted and <laughs> I hear the Christmas carols at the mall and, you know, we break out the nativity set and the lights and decorations. Yeah. And, and now, increasingly, there, I'm finding there's more people that are even inside the church who are kind of going back to a, a philosophy of, let's just, uh, you know, go back to the Torah and its festivals and forget stuff like Christmas and yeah. Easter and all of that. And by the way, they say, those used to be pagan holidays. And so you should have nothing to do with Christmas trees, nothing to do with stockings, nothing to do with St. Nick, especially St. Nick. Yeah. And, uh, and just skip Christmas. Go dark on December 25th. And so with all of that, I figured it was time someone needed to stand up and say, hold on, Christmas is the most exciting celebration of the year. And it's something that ought to produce joy in the hearts of 
everybody. Yeah. And we need to celebrate it loudly. And your hope that people get out of this is to what? Tell us about your hope. My hope for people watching Saving Christmas is that when they leave the theater, they will be singing joy to the world, the Lord is come. And they'll go home and wrap both of their arms around their Christmas tree, give it a great big <laughs> hug, and open up their doors and invite their whole neighborhood into their celebration and the story of this king and his kingdom. Let me paraphrase him. He basically said, okay, I made this movie, number one, because I love Christmas, and it's all about me. And number two, because I'm finding all these people reading the Torah these days and trying to get back to doing what Yahuwah actually told us to do. <laughs> Crazy, huh? I mean, why would we want to obey God and do the things that he actually told us to do when we're having so much fun doing it our way, right? And so I figured I'd stand up and say, forget all that doing what the Bible says stuff. I want to do things the way I'm used to doing them. So I had to give the one voice of truth in the whole movie some new eyes. And, you know, I talked to some historians, you know, the ones who supported my theories, and I used them as my main sources, not that silly old Bible. And when people question me about this, I tell them, hey, I used to be pagan, so why not continue doing pagan things in Yahuwah's name? My hope is that when people leave the theater, they will go home and continue to spread the lies. We have friends who do not celebrate Christmas because they say December 25th is really a pagan holiday. While I agree that Jesus may not have been born on December 25th, he certainly was born as described in the Bible. How do I respond to them? Well, in a sense, tell them they're right. Uh, you see, the, the, the winter solstice a couple of days later was the shortest day of the year. And the pagans had something called Saturnalia. And it was a time of lawlessness because all the laws were suspended. And people, the, a bunch of singers were actually wandered the streets naked singing. And, and then they had orgies, sexual orgies. It was a mass thing. Well, when the Catholic Church came along in Italy, the, the Romans and others didn't want to give up their holidays. So they said, okay, we'll Christianize it. And uh, so they said, okay, we'll say the birth of Jesus was the 25th of December. They, and then there was a, a monk who began to add it up. You see, uh, if you read in Luke, it, it says there's a census taken when Quirinius was governor and so forth and so on. And uh, they, they could take those leaders and figure the exact time dating from the foundation of Rome. And that's when the dates were established. And so they get pretty close to the date. But uh, to say it's the 25th, shepherds are out abiding in the field. It gets a little cold at night. I mean, were they out there in the middle of winter? Uh, you know, I don't know. I've been out there on the shepherd's field on Christmas Eve. It's very nice. But it's cold. And nevertheless, I mean, what was going on? So all this business about mistletoe, pagan, Christmas trees, pagan, giving out gifts, pagan. Every bit of it is pagan. Every single bit of it is pagan. We've Christianized it all. 
And uh, so that's good. And so we have time. We celebrate for Jesus. Everybody gets all misty-eyed. But the truth is, we, they're all pagan. <laughs> but the so birth the of Jesus. But the intent of the heart is what it's about. Exactly. Uh -huh. So we have Christianized all these things. We give gifts in the name of Jesus. We celebrate his birthday. And um, it's a nice thing. <laughs> the truth is, yeah, it's all pagan. We know it's pagan. Here are all the facts proving that it was, is, and always will be pagan. But we still like it because it is pagan. I mean, come on now. Isn't that lawless Saturnalia variety of paganism so beautiful? Yes. Oh, praise Jesus. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Yes, we just Christianize it, and it's all okay because... We like paganism. Pagan activities are so much fun. So if you'd like to continue to support our ministry, just call 1-800-BE-STUPID. And may Baal bless you as you hug your favorite Nimrod boner with Kirk Cameron and Pat Robertson under some big old balls of holly. Yes, I was crude. You know what? Because it is crude. These people are psycho. I'm sorry. It's just the truth. You listen to them, they're like, yeah, it's all pagan. We know it's pagan, blah, blah, blah. But we're going to come up with every excuse we could possibly come up with to say that we can Christianize paganism. Book, chapter, verse on that, buddy. Show me. Show me where that is. The precedence that we can just Christianize that which God says is an abomination. You know that mixture thing I told you about earlier? He doesn't like that. Who doesn't like that? You can't, you can't turn the profane into something holy. We don't have the authority to do that. Uh, and, you know, these people, people look to these to these characters for some sort of leadership in the Christian world. And, you know, by the way, when it comes to words, I'm becoming really kind of a I'm paying a lot more attention to them because words mean things. Words have meaning. The word Christ is too generic, just like God. Oh, I believe in God. OK, oh, that's cool. Which God? Which God are we talking about here? Uh, I believe in Christ. OK, well, that's good. Uh, which Christ? Because there's Jesus Christ, and then there's the Antichrist, and there's a lot of other Christs, too. Christos, in classical Greek usage, simply means to be covered in oil or anointed, and is thus a literal translation of Messiah, the anointed one. A Messiah, or a Mashiach, in the Hebrew Bible, is simply a king or high priest traditionally anointed with holy anointing oil. However, Messiahs were not exclusively Jewish, as the Hebrew Bible refers to Cyrus, the king, of Persia uh, as a Messiah for his decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem there. Was Cyrus the Christ? Not in the sense that we typically imagine, but according to the actual meaning of the word, yes, he was a Messiah slash Christ. See Hebrew text of Isaiah 45.1, for instance. The same is true of kings, right? Uh, and we see... Uh, the word Mashiach equals the anointed one. Messiah Christ comes from the word Mashiach or to smear it or, uh, with, uh, or anoint. Thus, we see these words used all over the Old Testament in reference to the Lord's anointed, or in other words, in reference to kings. First Samuel 24, 6. So he said to them, far be it from me because, the Lord, uh, because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he's the Lord the Lord's anointed or Mashiach or Christ. He's talking about Saul, Second uh, Samuel 19, 21. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, uh, Zeruiah, whatever, answered and said, shall not Shammai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's Mashiach, anointed Christ? 
Second Samuel 22, 51. He is the tower of salvation for this king and shows mercy to his Mashiach, Christ, unto David and to his seed forevermore. Now, bear in mind that the beast is referred to as a quote-unquote Christ uh, as well, albeit an antichrist, meaning an antithesis of the Christ. The beast is a false messiah, a false anointed one, a false king who is opposed to the true messiah, the true anointed one, the true king. So here's the problem. Our, our true messiah slash Christ was not born on December 25th. Everybody admits it. Everybody knows it. But they justify it. Well, of course we're going to do that. We used to be pagan. Why not? Yeah, used to be should be the key phrase. You're supposed to be a new creation, a new creature, putting that old stuff behind you. And by the way, Nimrod was also known as Baal, Baal, which is a proper name derived from the noun Baal, which is a Hebrew word that means Lord. So who then is this, quote unquote, Christ the Lord, quote, born a king on Xmas day? If you're out there singing, you know, born this day, you know, the king, Christ the king, blah, blah, blah. Well, our Messiah, the Christ, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, was not born on December 25th. So if you're singing songs about a king, a Christ being born on December 25th, and it ain't our Savior, who are you singing to? Who are you singing about? Uh, hint, it's not Jesus. It's not Yeshua. Oh, but uh, he knows my heart. Okay, Exodus 32, 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahuwah, yod heh vav -Hey. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They had a big old party. You know, we, we how did Yahuwah respond to this, guys? We talk about what it means to us, but imagine you are Yeshua. You were not born on that day, yet all of your followers are out celebrating stuff that has nothing to do with you or your birthday but rather are directly linked to your arch enemy, the end times beast. So again, in his eyes, which quote unquote Christ the King, are we really celebrating on December 25th? How does he feel about this false celebration in his name? How would you feel? I, I can see the 3000 getting wiped out saying, but, but you know my heart, I mean, we, we you know, the olive, the, the, the olive tav, the olive is represented by uh, an ox head. And we said that this is, this is our God that took us out of Egypt. We, 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 we clearly, we know that there was some sort of divinity, uh, deity that took us out. I mean, we saw pretty incredible things. And, you know, you, you were gone with Moses up in the mountain. We didn't know where you were. So we just, you know, Olive, we, we were creating something that represented you. We, we, we were going to have a party to you. We're going to have a feast unto Yahweh, Yahuwah, yod heh do you not see how the Israelites were saying the exact same thing Christians are saying today? But you know my heart. You know my intent. You know what I was thinking. 3,000 dead. Are you starting to see how this could be serious? You know, we have our Facebook debates and, and people comment on my YouTube videos and call me all kinds of names and everything for suggesting that it might be a good idea that we just go ahead and obey God. You know what? I believe that the spirit of Elijah 
is going out through people who are taking a stand and saying, you know what, there is a line being drawn in the sand. And secular world leaders who are hell-bent on their worship of Osiris and bringing him back to life and setting up altars and archways and things that are directly related to the ancient pagan deities, whether we're talking about Apollo or, or, or Osiris or Baal, they're doing it. And church leaders, people who call themselves Christians, are unfortunately standing on that side of the line with their whole idea of slapping the holy on the profane and thinking it's all right. No, what? It's not all right. Amos chapter 5 says that God despises your feasts, your songs, while you're doing things that are directly contrary to what he said he desires. It's not what we, it's not what it means to us. It's what it means to him. And I think that's why there are a lot of people out there who are just feeling this fire inside them. I know I'm feeling it. You know, I don't know if it's the spirit of Elijah going out in, in, into, the, into the world right now. I don't know. I have no idea. But I know that there are people like myself who are taking the same type of stand that Elijah took against the prophets of Baal. And I'm sorry, but not, not just the secular world leaders that are doing this and the secret society members, pastors right now are the prophets of Baal doing their X-mess and Ishtar day and justifying everything pagan under the sun. They are the prophets of Baal, along with the secret society members in, secu in the secular world. There's a line being drawn in the sand, guys. And we may not have that much more time to choose now which side of the line you're going to stand on. Because there's going to come time when God's going to say, all right, you've made your choice. You heard all the people. They were saying, come out of Babylon. You heard them. You want to go ahead and eat your pork. You want to go ahead and do your Ishtar day, you know, Easter Sunday and Xmas, Christmas and all that crap. You want to do that? Fine. The door is closed. Which side of the line are you going to be on? Choose now who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we don't want anything to do with Baal. And I hope for your sake, you make the same decision. Because if you look at the story of, of Elijah, it didn't work out too good for the prophets of Baal. Just saying.